0: Congressman John Robert Lewis was born in Troy, Alabama on February 21, 1940, to share croppers Willie May and Eddie Lewis. He is known for telling the story of preaching to chickens, but the boy from Troy, as he was nicknamed, went on to become a revered world leader and fearless advocate for voting rights. Organizing sit-ins in Nashville in 1960 and becoming one of the original Freedom Riders, Mr. Lewis joined the movement for civil rights and never looked back. As the chairman of SNCC, he served as the youngest speaker at the March on Washington in 1963. In 1965, alongside Reverend Hosea Williams, Congressman Lewis led a march for voting rights across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where he endured violent attacks by state troopers and vigilantes. Mr. Lewis fell to the ground with a fractured skull, and five months later, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965 into law. On the other side of that bridge, Mr. Lewis marched on into a life and career of activism and public service. He lost his first attempt at running for Congress in 1977, but was appointed the same year by President Jimmy Carter to the Director of Action, a federal agency for volunteerism. He then won a seat on the Atlanta City Council in 1981 and five years later ran for Congress and won. So much of the conversation about Congressman John Lewis has been about his activism, but he stood on so many legislative accomplishments, including sponsoring or co-sponsoring more than 1,100 bills. One of the most notable bills gave us the National Museum of African American History and Culture in 2003. He served as the subcommittee chair for oversight for the prestigious Ways and Means Committee and after the retirement of Congressman John Conyers became the dean of the Congressional Black Caucus. In 2019, He presided over the House floor as Congress passed H.R. 4. Since his passing, the bill was renamed the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Act, which was adopted by unanimous consent. Before being admitted to the hospital, Mr. Lewis stood in the heart of Black Lives Matter Plaza. He took his last breath on July 17, 2020, but his legacy lives on in all of us. We begin this John Lewis tribute where he also began, with civil rights. Joining me for this very important conversation are Vanita Gupta, President and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, Derek Johnson, President and CEO of the NAACP, Reverend Michael Flager, the Senior Pastor of the Faith Community of St. Sabina, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II, president of Repairs of the Breach and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. And Latasha Brown, co-founder and chief doer of Black Voters Matter. Thank you all so much for making time to talk with me today about an icon, Congressman John Lewis. So I wanna start with um, Vanita. Uh, because of your work at the Department of Justice, of course, um, I believe the year before you got to DOJ um, was the, um, the case, the decision that gutted the Voting Rights Act and Shelby versus Holder. And so I want to hear from you um, some of the things that you experienced in working with Mr. Lewis on the other side of that, because we know that right after that, all of the advocacy picked up to reinstate Section 5 to get the voting rights. Um, provisions where they needed to be in Congress. Um, And so just talk a little bit about some of your work uh, with Mr. Lewis on those issues.
1: Sure, thank you. It is truly an honor to be here with my warrior colleagues and friends and loved ones in the movement, Um, especially on today, Angela, where uh, I think probably all of us were um, in tears watching Mr. Lewis's funeral. you know, 2013, as you mentioned, the United States Supreme Court gutted the heart of the Voting Rights Act in a devastating decision, uh, the Shelby County versus Holder decision, uh, that really took away the long standing tool of one of the most effective pieces of federal legislation in our nation's history in the Voting Rights Act, that required states with long histories of racial discrimination and voting to pre-clear with the United States Justice Department changes made at the local level for election practices that had racially discriminatory impact. And the removal of that tool within hours of that decision coming down from the United States Supreme Court, states like North Carolina, Texas, enacted monster voter suppression laws, doing everything from uh, putting forth restrictive voter ID laws, cutting back early voting, same day registration. Um, And it took years to litigate and to challenge the Justice Department did, uh, working with advocates and activists in all states. Um, Where so, you know, years for the federal courts in a place like North Carolina, finally to say that the state legislators in North Carolina had enacted their monster voter suppression law with such surgical precision to disenfranchise African Americans. And meanwhile, countless elections had taken place. But Mr. Lewis's legacy was that in the face of this overwhelmingly bad decision for voting rights, he immediately went to action, which is always his way, was never in a would not allow despair to hold him back, and said we need to do everything we can to restore it and went to work with legislative partners in the Congressional Black caucus to put forth a bill immediately to restore it. On every prior reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act, Angela, it had always been done under the watch of a Republican president and at least one House of Congress being Republican. The unfortunate thing is after this decision, there really has not been bipartisan support And But Mr. Lewis, year after year, would stand at the podium, introduce the law, and say, we're in it for the long haul. I've been there before. I almost lost my life fighting for this law uh, uh, in 1965, and we will persevere to this, and we've got to keep our eye on the prize, and we're not going to let go until the day that this bill becomes law. So in this moment, um, where we're seeing a lot of performative mourning by Senate Republicans who have obstructed day after day everything that he has stood for and fought for with his life. It is time not only for us to restore the Voting Rights Act and pass the Voting Rights Advancement Act, but to do everything else that we can uh, to ensure open voting and go beyond it. As President Obama said today, it won't be enough to rest and return to the status quo. It is time for this country to unregard democracy and to make our democracy work for all of us and go far beyond the restoration of the Voting Rights Act uh, in this moment. It sure was.
0: I was trying to get to this um, paper. and was trying to not make too much noise and of course left it on mute. Classic Angela behavior. Derek, I want to go to you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Speaking of um, President Obama's eulogy today, uh, where we know that he talked not only about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act as it was changed um, to by unanimous consent on Monday in the House, but he talked about us taking it a step further and named some specific things that the legislature could immediately do to some of Anita's points. What are some things that the NAACP is currently working on and will push the House and the Senate to do to ensure that we uphold his legacy by marching forward?
2: You know, thank you for the question. Uh, I started this year with a singular focus on November. Elections have consequences. And as much as we can appreciate that uh, that statement in January, we're living the reality of it today. Whether it's the health pandemic that's a a consequence of 2016's elections, whether we're talking about the George Floyd incident and the decades of structural racism, so that's that's the result of decades of elections of putting in place policymakers who care li- who care little about Black folks. Uh, whether it is sitting in this moment trying to figure out how to navigate uh, the ability to choose between one's health and the right to vote. All of those things as a result of elections. So now we have to move from protest to power at the ballot box, from power at the ballot box to public policy implementations. John Lewis represent the continuum of a movement. We should not deify him, but we should use his life as an example of how we should navigate with integrity and with focus. You think about the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and I think Natasha was in Selma in 2000 when we had that election for mayor. The mayor of Selma, a city that was 70% black, both in 1965 and in 2000, was the same person, Smith. And as we celebrate what took place on that bridge, the lives of those who lived in Selma, Alabama, although changed some, it didn't change enough because they did not appreciate and and how uh, they can leverage they individually appreciate it, but their ability to leverage their vote to get someone to, repre- someone to represent their interests. That's what we need to do in terms of John Lewis' legacy. And if we can move from this moment of protest in the street, peaceful across the country, protesters looking like America, and get to the ballot box and carry a value proposition that our lives matter, Black folks' lives matter, that's a value statement. That's a factual statement. It's not a hashtag. It may be groups identified in it, but our lives matter. And take that value proposition and ensure that the policymakers who are elected actually implement public policy that reflect our needs and interests. Naming a bridge would be great. Naming the Voting Rights Act reauthorization bill and getting it passed would even be better. But making sure the value proposition that policymakers walk into office with January twentieth federally and after the first of January state and local would really. Uh, rec- uh, recognize his life's work, 62 years of life work that to, to exemplify that public policy determines structural racism. Structural racism can only be addressed through public policy, so we must march from protest to power, from
0: power to public policy. Derek, I'm gonna need that in a speech that I can use um, after this, <laughs> so I'll borrow it. I, it may or may not be with attribution, um, but that is, that is a bar, as the young people say. Latasha, I want to go to you from Alabama, um, talk about how much you stand on the shoulders of John Lewis regularly. Derek talked about this idea of a value proposition when people come into office on on January 2021. And the thing that um, I love about Black Voters Matter is you are never talking to us just about our responsibility stopping once we get to the polls and the fact that the elected officials responsibility isn't just getting on the ballot. Talk to us about the important bridge to cross um, to ensure that it's not just the power of the vote, it is what else comes with that to Derek's point around public policy.
3: You know, thank you for asking. One of the one of the things that people used to say all the time, these phrases that I hate, is that um, if you don't vote, you don't count, right? And it's so disrespectful because what it implies is that people, that the value of people is tied up in how they engage in the system. And ultimately all human beings, all human lives counts right, and has value. To the extent we're talking about the election and voting, that's where people actually operating in their agency to make decisions about them. But there's two things I think related to that. One, black voters have been seen as participants in a system, right? We're not voting just to participate. This is about power. And we've gotta be, un- it never ends. It's not just even about, is the policy piece that's power, and then that's power with the policy. Because ultimately what we do know is Brown versus the Board of Education was 1954. Most schools didn't get desegregated until the 1970s. So when you have policy and don't have people power, it doesn't work. And so ultimately what has happened is half the population in this country, they don't even vote. And that's not by accident. That's part of how people have been turned off in the process. And some of them have been marginalized from participating. I just want to briefly go to when Derek was talking about in 2000, because we were together on working that race, we worked hard and that that might be the hardest election I've ever Mm -hmm. worked on. And we had a Joe Gotta Go campaign. And Mm -hmm. what happened is there was this idea that part of the reason why Smithman, who was the white mayor, who was the same mayor who had called Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King was in office is because black folk, some way we were ignorant, we weren't voting. That's when I first got introduced to voter suppression firsthand. That ultimately what would happen every four years when there was an election, somehow when you start looking at the votes, the white boxes had as many votes or not Mm -hmm. more than the black boxes. Somehow Mm -hmm. there are dead people that were showing up on the rolls. Somehow when people tried to go vote, they were dropped off from the rolls. And so in that particular election, you know how we won that election? There was over 80% voter turnout that ultimately we had to overperform, where is there 80% turnout in the country? We had to overperform just to win. I'm raising that because there is a fundamental, we're back at that space now around voter suppression, that ultimately there were other things that happened. And even, even I'm going to bring up my beloved city of Selma for a number of reasons that it did not stop in 1965. There was 10 city, that there was a white backlash that when black folks went and registered Right where the world moved on and said things were fine, that there were many folks who were standing living on farms that got kicked out of their homes and literally lost their jobs. There was always this repercussion. What we're dealing with right now, in some way, is a back a, a white backlash from Obama, electing Obama. What we saw immediately after that was a white backlash, and we're still in, dealing with the remnants of that. I'm raising that because I think it's important that we really talk about even voting in the context of how does that give power back to the people. On some route, we have also allowed it, the Republican party has just been bad actors, but the Democratic party has been complicit too. If we want to be honest with those of us who live in the South, half the time, and Derek is one of them as well, we've had to even fight our brothers on both sides of the the aisle. And so I think it's really important that we're talking about making this bridge and what we have to do. We have to be honest and engage people in a conversation around um, affirming their agency and their humanity because part of what we act is we act, like I always say, every election cycle, it would be rounding Negroes up. Somebody three weeks out before the election will come and give resources and that's what the, the goal was. Instead of fundamentally believing that people have power, and they have agency and that they should be a part of the process of making the decisions around them. So that's one. The second thing I think is around, I think we're at this intersection again. We're going to keep going here until we really get, till we're honest, that the truth of the matter is democracy has not been realized in this country, right? And now we have a fascist and some people don't want to say it. I'm going to say it. We have a fascist that is in office right now, who literally on the day in which John Lewis is funeralized, Actually, uh, uh, says that we should push back the election, knowing he didn't have the power of that. Also, in his speech, if you heard what he said, he actually talked about even clamping down. That when they send the folks to, the, to to Portland, these are really really rough people. These are people like the regular police. What was he saying? In that process, there is a the the. We can talk about the politics of this, and we can talk about the policy of this. But there is a spirit in this country mm-hmm. around that has literally ki- we have killed the spirit of folks, or try to kill the spirit of folks, where well, we're talking about four million people that have, ha, that ha, right now, that are pos- tested positive for COVID-19. And we can't even have a conversation about healthcare. We can't even have a conversation about expanding healthcare. We're talking about elections. Elections are to a means to an end. They're not an end in itself. Part of the reason why the conversation stops there, because those who have been in political power, they benefit when we disengage, because it's really about them being in power and position. So we've got to flip this thing. I know this is more than what you asked for in that question, but we've got to flip this thing and have a real conversation around politics as it leads to power, as it leads to people power. And ultimately, what is it going to do if we're not using this process to advance the lives of people, then even the constitution says that when government no longer serves your interests, Interest. It serves the interests of the people. It should be replaced. It should be um, in or abolished. It says that. So ultimately, we got to have a reckoning even with ourselves around how we're engaging in this process. And we're not putting the focus on everything is just around vote, even though my whole life, adult life work is about voting, but literally is about centering people and the empowerment of people and helping them to believe in themselves, connect to their humanity and really feel a sense of their own agency and power.
0: I love that, Latasha, And I wanna go to um, our faith leaders, to the faith circle because I think Latasha is talking about the kind of power that in the Greek might be tutimus power. That's about the only thing I know, but just so y'all know, I am a Bible carrying (laughs) Christian woman. So I might be able to go back and get in, in Reverend Flager's pulpit again. I just wanted to throw that out there. Don't ask me to do any more words in the Greek. I probably got agape, philo, eros, and I think that's probably it. That wraps now, it up. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to come to you all because we know that faith, um, of course, it has been, was a central theme to the work, the life, and the legacy of John Lewis. But uh, Vanita said something that was also a bar earlier when she talked about performative mourning. We know that faith without works is a dead faith. And so I would love to know what you all um, could say to the GOP, to the Senate leadership, um, to ensure that they at least catch up with where the Democrats should be, and then tell us how we, how they should take a step further to really honor his legacy, uh, Mr. Lewis's legacy, so it's not performative But indeed, their faith becomes workable and action-oriented. And I'll go to Father Flager or to Reverend Barber. I know both of y'all can preach that word.
4: (laughs) Go ahead, Reverend Barber.
5: Go ahead, Reverend. Well, I think, let me stand up a second and thank all of you for being on. And Angela, thank you for this. Uh-oh. Oh,
0: Oh, he had to stand up for this one. This is going to get serious, (laughs) y'all.
5: Let me let me make sure I I dropped off where I can't see you or now I can see you. Oh,
0: we can see you.
5: First of all, I think faith um, requires some level of storytelling. And part of what happens is we don't tell the story right. And so we remember wrong. And if we remember wrong, we don't act right in the present. John Lewis was a man of the movement, not just an island unto himself. I listen to people when they say an icon, but if you talk to, I'm sure, Brother Fleger or my brothers and sisters uh, in the, uh, in the um, Ethiopian church and in the uh, Coptic church, icons are different than idols because mm-hmm. icons look back at you, but as you look in the eyes of the icon, you see yourself and what you ought to be doing. Uh, you don't just lift them up and you don't separate the icon from their larger meaning and from their work. So let's for a moment remember, John Lewis was not down there on that bridge by John Lewis himself. He he was invited to Selma. There had been a 30 year movement in Selma, the Dallas County Voters League. Let's remember that SNCC went in and part of that was also James Bevel's Alabama voting project before we saw Bloody Sunday. Let us remember uh, that there was a Catholic body in Selma, white people, who had been working for years with the Dallas County Voters League, that our movement has always been biracial. This is not new, what we're seeing today. We may be seeing more of it because of social media, but it's always been that way. Let's remember that Selma to Montgomery first began as the result of death. The death of Jimmy Lee Jackson, who was killed like James Floyd, by a, George Floyd by a cop. And then the death of James Reed that served a Unitarian white minister who actually ended up bringing in more people from around the country. We have to remember that. And then we need to remember that they began in a church and when they got to Montgomery, they heard a sermon. But it was probably, I think, in some ways, Dr. King's most well, I have a drink. That was his most powerful close, and that's the one that most people listen to. But that 1965 sermon at the steps of the, at the Alabama State House, where Dr. King laid out why there's always going to be such a fight over voting rights. And what he said was, the aristocracy in this country, always sows the vision when poor black folk and poor white folk have the power to come together and vote for the beloved community. At the end of the Montgomery bus boycott, I mean, excuse me, the seminar Montgomery March, Dr. King as a person of faith laid out a vision of these two powerful bodies come together same folk that had been used in the Civil War, that had been used down through history. He told the story of what happened in the 1800s, uh, 19, uh, me, yeah, 1800s, uh, and during the Reconstruction, how this Jim Crowism, this 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 racism, was sown deliberately to keep black and white poor people from forming unions. And he said, "This is what this is all about." It is about us as black people, but it's also about power. And it's about the reality that some folk know that if black poor people and white poor people ever find themselves together in a unity, the South will not be the same. And if you change the South, you change the whole nation. So John Lewis knew as a faith person also three woes in the Bible. Isaiah 10, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor of the right. He knew that you can legislate evil. And that's what we see happening today. We've seen it for a long time. When people legislate evil that rob the poor of their right, not just rob anybody, but rob the poor of their right and make women and children their prey and make immigrants their prey. The third, second woe he knew was the woe that Jesus said, which is woe unto those who go through all kind of ceremony, but they leave undone the work of justice. So you open the Congress with prayer, but then right after P-R-A-Y, you P-R-E-Y, on the people who need health care, the people who need living wages, the people who need voting rights. The third woe he knew was the one Jesus said, woe unto those who love the tombs of the prophets. That's what we've seen a lot today and the last few weeks, people who love the tombs of the prophets. They say all of these nice things about like McConnell the other day when he talked about John Lewis and how great he was and he relegated all of his work to the past. This man has held up fixing the Voting Rights Act for two thousand five hundred and almost 90 days. Today. (laughs) But but he but they love the tombs of the prophet because dead prophets don't bother you. What they don't want to see is us touch the body of the prophet and come alive. Because the Bible says in the Old Testament, whenever you touch the body of a dead prophet, if you're dead, you come back alive when you touch the body of a dead prophet. And you continue the work of that prophet and even move it further. Because you get a double portion of what that prophet had. So in this moment, as a matter of faith, when we talk about, for instance, the voting rights, it's not just political, it's also theological. Uh, i say this quickly because we only give the right to vote to people. We don't give the right to vote to pets, parakeets, and puppets, which means if I suppress your right to vote, I'm suppressing your Imago Dehi. I'm suppressing the image of God in you. When I suppress the right to vote, I'm actually engaging in a kind of idolatry to say that I'm more human and you're not human. So the right to vote is fundamental. The Jewish rabbis have taught me that the word for vote and the word for voice in Hebrew is the same word, kol. It's the same word. When it says the voice of the prophets, that same word could be translated the vote of the prophets. So my vote is my voice and my vote ought to represent my voice. In other words, my vote ought to represent the agenda that I care about. And so in this moment, yes, we need renewal of the Voting Rights Act, but it just can't be a renewal because the devil is in the details. We can't have a Voting Rights Act that allows Alabama, Mississippi, and North Carolina to exempt out and never be brought in and just have it on paper, but not in reality. You know, we ca- I come from North Carolina where we spent four years fighting the worst voter suppression bill since the Shelby decision that's that that phrase surgical precision came out of the case we won as president of North Carolina ACP, leading moral Monday uh uh um Caitlin and and pender hair and forward justice we fought in the courts and won people went to jail over 1200 people went to jail as well as we fought in courts. but we also registered the vote because we knew That in the South, for instance, if you can get right now in the South and back all over this country, last thing I'll say is poor and low wealth people represent 32% of the electorate. We have a study coming out soon that says if just 10 to 15 to 20% of poor and low wealth people could get together around an agenda of all races, creed and color and vote, they could fundamentally change all of the major Senate races. And, every, and the presidential elections in this country. So what we're saying, and I think John Lewis, if you go to his speech in 1963, he lifted up two things on the March on Washington. I'll stop here. He said to Kennedy, this bill isn't good enough unless it protects the sharecropper who loses his land for trying to vote and the maid who works for $5 an hour in a household that makes $100,000. John Lewis was the only one that mentioned sharecroppers that day. He was the only one that mentioned maids. And he made it clear that they were there for for, for voting and for jobs. So in the Poor People's Campaign, what we're saying is there are five issues you have to address simultaneously. And if you look theologically, you have to address them too. These five are systemic racism in all of its forms. A manifestation toward black people, brown people, uh, uh, indigenous people, systemic poverty, because there are 140 million poor people in this country. And before COVID, 140 million poor people in this country, 43% of the nation, before COVID, 700 people were dying a day from poverty. So uh, we have to address ecological devastation and the denial of healthcare. We have to address the war economy. That's where the money is. That's where the money is for infrastructure. That's where the money is for healthcare. That's where the money is to give more money to protect the electric. That's where the money is for living wages. If you just took one military contract, one, you could fund all 14 states that have denied healthcare in total for several years. And we have to address this false moral narrative of religious nationalism. And they have to be addressed together. And we have to bring that coalition that King and Lewis talked about at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. We have to do that together. And when we do that, I would close and say this. And I know that's the third close, so this is the last one. It was, it, it's in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 22, where the scriptures say, your politicians have become like wolves devouring the people but what is worst is your preachers tell them they are right and say to them things that God has not said and then it says God said Ezekiel I look for somebody to stand in the gap to protect the poor and the women and the immigrant and I could not find anybody so I'm going to destroy the nation then God takes a pause for 15 chapters And in the 15th chapter, God says, the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, God says, Ezekiel, I'm going to try one more time to find somebody, but I don't want you to go look among the politicians. I don't even want you to go look among the the, the clergy there. I want you to go in the Valley of Dry Bones, all of the people that are broken and feel hopeless, and I want you just to preach to them. Don't worry about their power. I'll give them power. But in other words, God said the rejected will have to lead the revival. So any of us, I believe, that are not talking about the 140 million people that are poor in this country, 61% of all African Americans are poor and low wealth. 30% of white folk are poor and low wealth. That's 26 million black folks, 66 million white folk. If we can bring black folk from Alabama together with white folk from the uh, Appalachia and form that power, we don't even have to get 50% of them, just 20% and have them engaged in an electorate together around an agenda that starts with the addressing of systemic racism, the Valley of Dry Bones can rise up and shift this nation. That's what King and John Lewis were talking about at the end of the Selma to Montgomery March. And I believe theologically if he's our icon, we must see that
4: today.
0: Wow, Father Flager, Reverend Barber, hey you a fiery mic so i yeah
4: think all i can say is amen reverend
0: <laughs> well, um, Father Flager, let me ask you this though because i think this is important uh reverend barber raised religious nationalism in his remarks and i think that you um although you may look like them they treat you like you're one of us um, and you have been at the, the target, you've been a target of this, right? Like they, they've they come in, bash the work of the folks on the ground in Chicago, to which, you know, you are, of course, a part of that. We know that, yes, John Lewis is a tremendous voting rights, was a tremendous voting rights advocate, but he also protected Black lives. They've said that we don't care about Black Lives mattering because look at what's happening in your own communities. You fight every day against these issues. Talk to us about... Um, religious nationalism and how it stands in the way of us walking on one accord, touching and agreeing to get to the beloved community that Reverend Barber also referenced.
4: I would do that first, Angela, I wanted to mention the fact that something that Reverend Barber talked about was the, the tomb of the prophets. And as we took, I kind of chuckled today of all oh uh, this past week, all the comments, all these people that are making all these wonderful remarks about John Lewis, and I wanted to say, Will you pick up your, his mantle? Will you put your body on the line as he did? Um, particularly people of faith. John Lewis's foundation was his faith. And, and he comes out of the civil rights movement, you know, rooted in the faith tradition, rooted in churches and scripture and prayer and then marching orders and the, the, the church and the faith community was so powerful in that and it, it, the church community then moved to action. It wasn't about coming together to church. It was about coming to be empowered to go out and build the kingdom of God on earth. And in the last 20 to 30 years tragically what's happened is that the faith community has got spiritual laryngitis the faith community has lost their and uh, their identity and and how do you talk about a man and his great faith but the faith that we see today represents and looks like nothing of what john lewis's faith was sodom and gomorrah weren't destroyed because they were so evil they were destroyed because they couldn't find 10 righteous people to stand up for justice and for righteousness and for truth and the church today the faith community how faith is defined today is not uh is not by mega impact dexter avenue and and ebenezer were small churches but today it's mega church um, and it's not about mega church, it's about mega impact. What are you doing to make a difference to build the kingdom of God? And church today or faith today has been defined um, as being safe, as being comfortable, as being part of, of the of the structure of evil in this world and, and, and not the sacrificial element and the prophetic voice to which the John Lewis's and, and the C.T. Vivian's and the Jim Lawson's and all the rest came out of. So today, and then then we have the audacity to call America a Christian country, you know? How dare we? Because what's the danger of that? We're now defining Christianity by what? An evil country and an evil toxic country that, that more masses of people are oppressed and, and, and injustice as reigns and supremacy um, rules today and we define that as Christianity. So people say, if this is what Christianity is, I want nothing to do with it. And so we've redefined, we've hijacked Christianity. We've hijacked Jesus. We've hijacked the Bible. We've made it all something that's very safe and that's very comfortable and in fact affirms and use it like has been done in the evangelical church to affirm evil and to, and to theologize evil and to say it's all right. And so if we want to talk about the honesty of john lewis then let's talk about the faith that is radical the faith that turns over tables the faith that talks about leveling mountains and filling in valleys and, and and straightening up what's crooked and and let's talk about the faith of being light that shatters darkness so we we must make sure if we're going to honor john lewis We're going to remember a man who was sacrificial, put his body on the line, a man who was committed to nonviolence like the Jesus that he believed in and served, the consistency of being on the front line, and at the same time understood that evil doesn't just end. It must be resisted. It must be fought. It must be dismantled. But today, faith has been defined by by a country and by a false imposter religious folk who have made it to be something other than what the John Lewis faith and the Jim Lawson and the C.T. Vivian and the Martin King faith defined for us. And shame on us. Shame on us for allowing that to take place in America and hijack the Bible and hijack Jesus and make it something. So today, when all these wonderful people are saying all these things about John Lewis and, all oh, he was a great man of faith, how dare you? How dare you mm-hmm. talk about him as being this and yet it's that's something that you have hijacked and redefined. I mean, I watched that. Remember when Muhammad Ali died? All these great athletes talk about he was their hero. He was their mentor. Well, why don't you have the faith and the courage to do what he did? So I think we have to be very careful when we're talking about faith in John Lewis. Let's talk about the, the real faith. And let's talk about the, the, that was founded in him, that was rooted in him, that moved him to the action. He did what he did because of the faith that was the core of who he was. And today, faith doesn't move us. Faith re- dis- distance us from action. Distance us. Faith is something that we do on the side so that racists and supremacists and bigoted people can go in churches and synagogues and mosques every weekend and feel comfortable in those holy places being racist and bigoted and oppressors in this country. We have to grab hold of the faith that these giants were rooted in and now teach that faith, if we're really going to be be true to uh, and honor him, then live the faith that he taught us.
0: Thank you so much, Father Flager. I'm going to start with you, and I, we got to be quick. I know I have to let all of you go, but I want each of you to just offer up one thing we can do immediately. I hate having conversations without specific action. So one thing that each of us can do as a, as a people, as a nation, um, to honor Mr. Lewis's legacy today and always with our actions. So one thing you think we can do, Father Flager, I'm going to start with
4: you. One thing I think we've got to do is decide that evil is not going to just go away and change is not going to just happen. What are you going to fight for? What are you going to pick? John Lewis said after Dr. King and, and after um, Bobby Kennedy got killed, he felt he was pushed to do something. What are we feeling? What, every person feeling pushed to do so. What are you going to do to make a difference? So everybody has to ask themselves that question. I
0: love that. Vanita, how about you?
1: Now, Congressman Lewis said that democracy is not a state, it's an act. I think hope is not a state, it's an act. And right now in this moment, uh, we can't stop at restoring the Voting Rights Act. We've got to work to enact automatic registration, restore rights for formerly incarcerated people. We need to add polling places, not be shutting them down. We need to expand early voting. We need to make election day a national holiday. We need to pass DC statehood. We need to end gerrymandering and probably end the filibuster. And at the end, we need to vote and we need to show up, Uh, that will be the greatest thing that we can do to honor uh, Congressman Lewis's legacy and to make sure that we are fighting for our democracy with hope. I
0: love that. Vanita and Barack Obama on message. Uh, And that is exactly what was instructed in the eulogy as well. I love that. That's a good note for us. We should definitely all make sure we have those notes and we're all saying the same thing. That's a great step forward. Uh, Derek, I'm gonna go to you.
2: It is not much more I can say after what Benita uh, she said, she, she summed it up. Uh, John Lewis was an uh, ordinary person who did extraordinary things. We are all ordinary people with the capacity to do some extraordinary things, but we need to do those things full of integrity, with a strong char- character, and recognize what we do for others come back to us tenfold. It is not about us, it's about our neighbors, and if our neighbors are safe and healthy, we can create a, the beloved community that so many of us are long for.
0: Thank you, Latasha. This little light of
3: mine, <laughs> I'm gonna let it shine. This. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Each of us have a light. Um, This is the moment we need all hands on deck. I wish I could say one thing, but it's not one thing. One, you know, if I were to think we got to organize, that at the end of the day, we have to organize Yes, we've got to vote, but we've also got to radically reimagine this country, that if we want something different, that we can't stay stuck in what the founders, what we say American founders, because the founders of this country had the ideas around democracy, but they certainly didn't believe in democracy. So then we need the founders of democracy to step up. And so we each have a light. So I think the one thing that we can do is show up, to show up and be a light and a lamp for others.
0: I love that. And. The doors of the church are now open after that. I didn't even ask Latasha to sing today. I wasn't going to do it. The Reverend Barbara, the doors of the church are open. Go ahead and do this altar call. Take us home. What's the one thing we need to do?
5: Well, I think that in this moment, we have to realize that we are in the midst of a third reconstruction. And it could go either way. And literally, the possibility of America, the question on the ballot is not, just two presidential candidates for president or the Senate, but will America be? Uh, Langston Hughes' poem, America's never been America to me, but I swear this oath that America can be, will be. And some of us have decided in this moment when we watched George Floyd die and be strangled to death and calmly lynched with a knee. And when we've seen people go in the hospital in 48 hours, they're breathing their last breath. We've asked people to say this, stop for a minute. And ask yourself, what would you do if you knew your last breath were two days away? What kind of world would you fight for? And then start acting like that, even if you live forty-eight more months or forty-eight more years, as though we have no more breath to waste. And we are saying to folk, then if that's if you if you really want to take that, decision, then use your last breath, your breath. To fight to change the reality of systemic racism from police violence to resegregation of schools to voter suppression, the mistreatment of native people, to mistreatment of immigrants, to fight to change the reality of systemic poverty, ecological devastation, this war economy and militarization, and stand against the false moral narrative of religious nationalism. We we I truly believe we must be serious about really mobilizing, organizing, registering, and educating the members of the 140 million people in this country of poor and low wealth, 61% of our people, the majority of our people that are essential workers that are are being treated like they're expendable, they're being called heroes, but as one lady said, I feel like I'm a zero, and every day I feel like I'm going to my own mass murder. We must start right now, challenging McConnell. But we also must focus on voting, not just for the president, president and senate. And re—I love that word—reimagine, reconstruct this democracy. Not, and we need people to vote around an agenda, not just for personality. An agenda that says we're gonna fight and turn everything we can out for a hundred days, and then we're gonna make whoever is elected better than they even imagined they could be. We're going to make them do more than they thought they could do like the movement did to Lyndon Johnson and Kennedy. They didn't plan to do what they planned they did. They did not plan to be written down in history side by side, but the movement determined the political atmosphere and changed them. And so hopefully that's the attitude we have, voting for an agenda, voting for reconstruction, and deciding that until my last breath, I will never, we will never give up on love and justice and truth.
0: I love you all. I am so grateful that to just share time with you to honor um, Congressman Lewis's legacy, but not only through um, remembering him and memorializing him and paying tribute to him, but to share space with each of you, given the work you do every single day I know that he is so proud of each and every one of you. And as he tells us to go and get in good trouble, I'm so grateful that I could have a panel of some of the best troublemakers in this country. Thank you so much for the work you're doing. And I hope you all know you can call on me to get in trouble with y'all. Thank you.
5: God bless you. Thank you.
6: George Wallace may be gone, but we can witness our federal government, sending agents to use tear gas and batons against peaceful demonstrators. We may no longer have to guess the number of jelly beans in a jar in order to cast a ballot. But even as we sit here, There are those in power who are doing their darndest to discourage people from voting by closing polling locations and targeting minorities and students with restrictive ID laws and attacking our voting rights with surgical precision, even undermining the postal service in the run-up to an election that's gonna be
0: dependent on mail-in ballots so people don't get sick. It is my honor to be joined by Reverend Jesse Jackson, who is the founder and president of the Rainbow Push Coalition. I'm joined by Reverend today for an exclusive one-on-one conversation about the life and legacy of John Lewis. It's so important for me to sit down with you, Reverend, because you witnessed uh, Congressman Lewis firsthand, his evolution, from the boy from Troy who used to preach to chickens to a public servant as soon as he walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And so I really want to talk to you about that first of all because you're one of my heroes. I grew up with a Reverend Jesse Jackson pitcher on my mantle um, oh because, boy. as you know, my dad, Eddie Rye, uh, worked on campaigns in 84 and 88. So you are mm-hmm. a legend to me. So I'm so grateful to be with you today. Thank you. So can you talk to us first about your friend, um, John Lewis? And sure,
7: what so he said. I'm sad. We met in the spring and summer of 1960. And he left in the spring and summer of 20, 20, 60 years of being together. That, that's a long time. Yeah. I met his wife, Lillian, before he met Lillian. They got married. We became friends, uh, Jack and Lillian, and then John. Uh, so we've been together for a long time. I think what's missing about the analysis of John, John had the, the courage of the convictions and all of that. But it's important to put what he did in the context. You don't know, you know, separate Mandela and Tombaugh from and C. Yeah, I'm going to separate, John, from the legal foundation. From 1911 to 1954, we faced 4,000 lynchings. A handful of black lawyers had to go into small towns and not so small towns and uh, under great danger, great duress. So let's get the legal foundation straight. I think that those legal heroes, Howard and Harvard, must be put in place. But even when the law changed, the culture didn't change. It took nine years of bus rides and pirate and sit in, and march demonstrations. Johnny Murray's hitting SNCC. Yeah. Which was, but SNCC joined the mainstream of the law. SNCC did not do a generational thing like we're young y'all old. SNCC joined the movement, the legal foundation movement. And so by 60. Can,
0: 60- can I ask you about that really quick? So I, I hear you saying, that uh, John Lewis joined um, the movement that was already existing. He did not make it a generational divide conversation. Were you there when um, Dr. King got the letter from John Lewis asking to be a part of the movement?
7: The day, the, the day Dr. King and John Lewis spoke in Washington from Florida to Texas, the Maryland use used a single public toilet. My high school class contained prison in Long state capitol. Uh, we can advise you how it's uh, so done. We can say it how they end. Black and brown sort of sat behind not of the in American military bases that day. we had to break that barrel. So we got that, that as a huge breakthrough for public dignity in 64. Then there's a big comes to the Democratic Convention in 64, where Fran Littlehammer and them, Mississippi Democrat, they, they don't live, they want liberation. A lot of tension around that convention. Then in 65, Mr. Megan Boynton came and asked Dr. King to come to him down to the Bulls League, and he came and blah, 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 blah. rest history. John was representing SNCC that day on the march, and Jose was representing SCLC. The beating he took to immortalize him because it was such a fundamental thing.
0: Did you ever have a moment? um, Because so often we think of nonviolence as without conflict. Do you have a moment where you were at conflict with Mr. Lewis in the movement, whether it was disagreement on strategy or something else? I know um, SNCC and SCLC certainly didn't always see eye to eye. Is there a notable moment where you all were at conflict, and how did you resolve that?
7: Well, non-violence is is a way of life as well as a, a strategy. You can't take on the Confederacy. With weapons, you have none. You can't. You can't reload. And that's and, and lose the power. And when snake uh, dumped John Lewis and went went uh, public with their violence, they lost. Lost. They had no foundation. Of black community, a black labor, uh, progressive supporters. They, they they went out of business. John remained connected to, to the main team. And then that's why he had the navigate his way through, but John emerged out of that. Really the valedictorian of our class.
0: Valedictorian of your class. What do you say to young people who saw John Lewis, as you talked about, become the youngest speaker at the March on Washington who are encouraged by his visibility, but also um, at the more radical side of his strategy. What do you say to young folks who are in the streets right now, Reverend? This is a time of tremendous change. I know in my lifetime, I didn't expect for people to agree with the affirmation that Black Lives Matter, but we're here now um, with, I think, the highest approval rating ever with 67% of Black Lives Matter. Um, what do
7: you think? Non, non, non-violence is, is, is radical. When you, when, you, when you go non-violent and massive with discipline and coalition, and even, if we go violent, they have AK-47, they manifest. Non-violence confuses them. Mm-hmm. So combination of non-violent direct action that's massive and discipline and voting and coalition, that's a winner. That's why through all of the, the Trump stuff. Sixty blacks in the Congress, and they got voted in. Four of the Latinos in the Congress, two then Americans in the Congress. The top of that vote, and now the top coalition of middle, middle whites, who's the march for freedom, but not for equality.
0: What is the the one of the greatest lessons you learned from um, John Lewis, the activist, and the John Lewis, the legislator?
7: Or one lesson that you think we should all learn from him: find out what you do to will last. for purpose is bigger than person. For example, this generation, it purpose bigger than person. If today, if Black Lives Matter, fight for the constitutional right to vote. when really we only have the states' right to vote. No you have fifty different elections, um, separate and unequal. We should have the right. We have the constitutional right to bear arms, speak, but not to vote. That's a big issue. Uh, Kentucky today, for example, where you got uh, Ron Paul is uh, holding up, making lynching a trailer crime. You have uh, Mr. Uh, O'Connell holding up voting and, 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 and food for the hungry.
0: Reverend, you said that um, Black Lives Matter should put efforts in the constitutional right to vote, but you also just brought up Kentucky. Um, and we know that Breonna Taylor was shot and killed in her home where she slept in Kentucky. Um, shouldn't um, some of their efforts just be about that kind of justice and equality where law enforcement is held to account for taking someone's life just like we are?
7: Well, let me put this way, Angela. Police patrol, politics control. So if we, in fact, Patrol the police forces, and those who shot her must, in fact, be arrested. They have not been arrested. I went to Minnesota, and um, the guy who killed George Floyd, remember it was the prosecutor? He said, "We can't lock him up." Keith Ellison got the case. He locked up the next day. All four of them. Mm-hmm. The vote and coalition. Well, Minnesota, about three percent black. He, same as with Paul Howard in, in Atlanta kill the guy in the back, at least for vote. But he, he is now facing uh murder as an indictment. That's the power of that vote. Yeah. So I would say the young people who march, they keep marching. March for that, for example, what does Wall Street mean to who what does that last mean to Wall Street to access the Capitol? What does it mean to all the industry? What does it mean to NASA? What does it mean to all the, uh, the to the motion What does it mean to Silicon Valley? Let's apply the principle of, 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 uh, the principles of Black Lives Matter uh, across but don't, 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 don't limit the, 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 limit with police. Trade. Mandel didn't go to jail 27 years for better brother police. within the end system, you can hire and fire police to alter their behavior.
0: Yeah.
7: And to me, the, the beauty of Ellison in, in, in Minnesota, the guy who killed George Floyd. A million dollar bond. You know, it was a killed a uh, brother in, in Atlanta and died in three days. Mm-hmm. That, so, if you think about Black Lives Matter, where did come from? Remember when Trevor Martin was killed and uh, the other was killed in New York and, and all that. And, and the killer walk away free. So I say, with Michael Brown on the ground, and person, don't black lives matter.
0: Reverend, um, as long as I have known you and followed your work, you've talked about the constitutional right to vote, um, which we uh, don't have with the same protections that you mentioned around bearing arms and free speech. Um, For as long as I've known the work of John Lewis, he's fought for voting rights. What do you think is the next frontier in addition to the
7: constitutional right to vote? John, John fought for the protected voting rights, which means that with, 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 with uh, Section Five on it, yeah, you could not move a district without checking to the to the attorney general. They did, in Roberts, in the 2013 Shelby, they took that away. They weakened the voting rights, but Six it was weak compared to the constitutional right to vote. We knew when in, 19, in the year 2000, uh, Bush hit by 530 votes. They stopped the count. 27,000 blacks in the Valley County had not been counted. This is, it was a state, state election. And the governor was, was Bush's brother. Ms. Harris was Secretary of State he used the name of prisoners to confuse it. So states control. Killer Beach Trump by 3 million votes. He's the president. Somebody that don't smell good to me.
0: It's the electoral college.
7: What well, ain't no class in class be stock in voting. <laughs> vote one person, one vote.
0: Yeah. So you want to get rid of the electoral college, Reverend? Absolutely. That's a way to honor you and Mister Lewis, right?
7: Well, the fact I mean, we, we were, we're one person, one vote. Yeah. There was some notion back in the day that if the common people voted. They make a they make a mistake. You have a, a backdrop, bad kind driver of a college. The Jersey people's vote. Yeah. Well, we're more towards that now. we have more action media than so. We don't need no no backup to democracy. There's no oversight over the vote. We need the vote to count. Not, not oversight. The vote must count.
0: Yeah. So you you and Mister Lewis have a, a a similar path in that. Um he went from activism, and I'm not saying he ever got rid of activism or ever stopped being an activist, but went from activism to public service through elected office. And you certainly went from activism to broadening out with the Rainbow, Rainbow Push Coalition into running for office yourself. What do you say to people who see the pathway to public service um, as a form of moderating? Because you have to compromise so much. Um, once you're elected. What do you say to folks about um, whether or not you're, I know that you said nonviolence is radical, but folks who would say that as you have to shift to become more publicly acceptable and receive that you have to moderate.
7: When you're in Congress, when you you trade with power, you win. You had three or four blacks in the Congress. What can they trade? 60 blacks in the Congress. One of Latinos, two Native Americans, But powers so we 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 can we can trade and and win at the same time. I chose another route, uh, the third rail. You look at the, the the train tracks in Chicago, New York, the tracks track A and track B. Uh, the electrical gadget is the third rail for so the power is. And when i I open up the system. I ran eight to We had uh, two million new voters and. Uh, Four hundred eighty-four delegates. That didn't come up right because if I got four nine percent, my got fifty percent. He get all hundred delegates. We challenged that. So by eighty-eight, we had uh, proportionality as opposed to one person one vote uh, proportionality. We got twelve hundred delegates, but nineteen million dollars out by there And in the way when President Barack war, ran, following the eighty-four rule, Hillary would the one. She won California. Texas, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and New Jersey, New York. The found eight, eight rules, but Brock hung in there. So the rules matter. Yeah. The reason why we do so well on, on the basketball court, playing for the even rules public the to the it's fair so it was transparent. and transparent. Whenever the rules are fair, we can make it. I
0: love that. And that's all you all have been fighting for. Reverend, I don't um, have another question but I do want to offer you up um, any parting words, anything that you want us to take from the life and legacy of your friend, John Lewis, the activist, the legislator, the public servant, and the voting rights fighter.
7: You're about all those focus on, on, for example, today. It's not enough to vote for Biden as to, other, other, other than Trump. That's a good thing. But we it. Health disparities. You we know, the plan to, to even access health care. System able have health insurance, need a comprehensive health plan, uh, education disparities, job disparities. We must, if we take up a house and then the we must address those disparities. We, 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 we can't be a mild in the right way. We must be demanding, 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 even the plan to access the capital, industry, technology, the health of education, healthcare. Now, that's the mission of this generation. And clearly, we, we, we're a force in the world. When you see people marching, taking down statues in London and France, we, 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 we're the light on the hill. we move we, 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 the whole world moves. I'm glad about that.
0: Yes, Reverend, well, we stand on your shoulders, and I'm so grateful for all of the opportunities I've had to learn from you and the many more you know that you can always pull my coat if I'm not getting it right and I intend to make you proud. So
7: that's oh, that's on your on your, your daddy's shoulders. <laughs>
0: yeah, and my daddy's shoulders. <laughs> thank you.
7: Freedom Fighter. God bless you, Angela.
0: Thank you. God bless you, Reverend.
7: Give, give, give Maxie Walls my regards. I love her so much.
0: I will tell her. She, she knows that so,
7: i She right. is so she's so special.
0: She is. Thank you, Reverend. We love you. Thank you.
8: Mr. Speaker, I rise to ask unanimous consent to address the House for five minutes. Today, I come with a heavy heart, deeply concerned about the future of our democracy. And I'm not alone. People approach me everywhere I go, whether I'm traveling back and forth to Atlanta or around our country. They believe, they truly believe that our nation is descending into darkness. They never dreamed that the United States, once seen as a beacon of hope and as an inspiration to people striving for equality and justice, would be f- failing into such degrees. I share that concern for the future of our country. It keeps me up at night. We took an oath to protect this nation against all domestic enemies and foreign enemies sometime i'm afraid to go to sleep for fear that i'll wake up and our democracy will be gone will be gone and never return every term this administration demonstrate complete disdain and disregard for ethics for the law and for the constitution They have lied on the oath. They refuse to account for their action and appear before legislative body who have the constitutional right to inquire about their activities. The people have a right to inquire. They have a right to know. The people have a right to know whether they can put their faith and trust in the outcome of our election. They have a right to know Whether the cornerstone of our democracy was undermined by people sitting in the White House today. They have a right to know whether a foreign power was asked to intervene in the 2020 election. They have a right to know whether the president is using his office to line his pockets. Mr. Speaker, the people of this nation realize that if they had committed even half of the possible violation, the federal government would be swift to seek justice. We cannot delay. We must not wait. Now is the time to act. I have been patient while we tried every other path and used every other tool. We will never find the truth unless we use the power given to the House of Representatives and the House alone to begin an official investigation as dictated by the Constitution. The future of our democracy is at stake. There come a time when you have to be moved by the spirit of history to take action to protect and preserve the integrity of our nation. I believe, I truly believe, the time to begin impeachment proceedings against this president has come. To delay or to do otherwise would betray the foundation of our democracy. Thank you, Mr. Speaker.
0: Thank you so much, Congressmember Bass, for joining us today. Um, you are the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, which has earned the moniker the Conscience of the Congress. But I found out recently that that was also shared with Congressman Lewis. Tell me why and how Congressman Lewis has um, ensured that the CBC could continue to carry that moniker on.
9: Well, you know, today was such a um, a incredible day to watch him uh, go home, to watch him be laid to rest. And uh, he was what we call the Dean of the caucus because he was the longest serving member of the Congressional Black Caucus. And it was just, you know, the moral standing that he always had, no one ever questioned him. And in 435 members of the House, 100 members of the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, bar none, there was no one who was as respected as Mr. Lewis. He often said to me, Karen, would you please call me John? And I said, no, Mr. Lewis, I'm not calling you John. I'm calling you Mr. Lewis. <laughs> but his standing and just, and and everybody knowing what he had been through, you know, that's why he was called the conscious of the Congress.
0: I love that. And you also just think about, um, so often he's branded as this voting rights champion, but he truly, truly did carry that same, conscientiousness into every aspect of legislating. Um, He was a subcommittee chair on Ways and Means, which we know is a super coveted spot. Can you talk, um, Ms. Bass, about some of your experiences with him, even in dealing with health disparities? I know an issue that's near and dear to your heart Um, from the legislative perspective, because so often we only talk about Mr. Lewis crossing the bridge, but we don't talk about all of the miles he's gone since then um, in public service and as a legislator.
9: Absolutely, well serving on ways and means, he essentially was the one who drew the line in the sand over the safety net. And if you just think about Mr. Lewis, it would be completely consistent with crossing that bridge and fighting for voting rights because voting rights is so fundamental that of course he would fight to protect the programs that take care of the people in our country that are the most vulnerable. Whether you were talking about food stamps our public assistance or childcare or social security, those are the programs that he would handle in the Ways and Means uh, Committee. But, but I wanna tell you about two other things yes. because Mr. Lewis was also a historian And when I got here, one of the things that used to bother me about being in the Capitol is that I knew my ancestors built this building. I knew they did. I knew the enslaved Africans built this building, but I didn't know what their story was. And no one told their story. So when I got here, Mr. Lewis told me that he spent 10 years digging and finally found the information. And what happened with this building is that the U.S. government rented Uh, enslaved Americans from plantations that surrounded the Washington DC area. And they brought them over here. Of course, they worked for free, but the US government paid their quote unquote owners. I hate to use that expression. And then the statue that's on the top of the Capitol, um, Mm -hmm. the folks couldn't figure out how to get it up there. It was an enslaved man who told them how to put that huge statue of, of a woman up on the top of the Capitol. The other thing that we all can treasure that he did, he led the fight to get the African American History and Cultural Museum built. Angela, do you know that they spent a hundred years trying to get that museum built? The first legislation was introduced shortly after the Civil War. In 1930, in 1930, the legislation was passed. And then when Mr. Lewis came, he picked up that baton and he fought for it year after year after year. And it took Bush 41 to, uh, I'm sorry, Bush 43 to put the money into the legislation that allowed the museum to be built. And then President Obama was the one that cut the ribbon. And so you talk about on a legacy. Now, that's a legacy of Mr. Lewis that the entire country can experience because I'm hoping that everybody comes by and visits our museum. That's what I call it. It's my museum. Of course, it's closed now because of COVID, but it'll be open soon.
0: Yeah, and it sure is ours. And you, you know, you think about um, not only Mr. Lewis's uh, regular fight for us um, on the House floor, in the committee room, and to your point around the museum, which we call the Blacksonian, um, (laughs) uh, I, I didn't realize that I, one, I did not realize that it had been introduced for a hundred years. I know that he initially partnered with, um, Mickey Leland. Yeah. And his pledge to Mr. Leland was, I'm going to make sure that this bill gets passed. So for 15 sessions, he introduced that bill and, um, it just I'm sitting here like tearing up, thinking about all of the aspects of history that you're talking about. And the first thing that comes to mind, I'm about to cry, is the, Mr. Lewis, his official photo, which has the that you know, the Capitol in the background, and you know that he had that office in Canon, so mm-hmm. that he could have that view of the Capitol. So it's just like this awe-inspiring full circle moment where there you all are. Making the ancestors proud every single day, and making it a you know a better place to live and to thrive in this country um, with the legislation that you all work on so diligently every day. Can you tell me, Miss um, Bass, about a moment, maybe even in a CBC lunch meeting um, with Mr. Lewis that you that you treasure? Um, something a little more personal. <coughs> People do always recognize this icon, but we forget that there was a human being sometimes right behind that icon status.
9: Well, I will tell you <laughs> when, um, when, and if Mr. Lewis heard anybody being negative or being cynical or wanting to give up, he grabbed that microphone <laughs> and you would get that lecture. Don't give up. <laughs> yes. speak, up speak out. Speak <laughs> out. Get in good trouble, he would give you that lecture. Because sometimes, you know, I mean, that's why the CBC is such a wonderful space. I mean, it's the best hour of the week, without a doubt. And that's one of the reasons why. Because all that you go through as a member of Congress, all that you go through as an African American member of Congress, and then you have an hour to yourself uh, in a week where you can really fellowship, invent, and, <laughs> and lament. And be cynical, but you better not be cynical around Mr. Lewis.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love that so much. Um, I also just want to um, ask you, uh, after this week, with the unanimous consent to rename H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, what would you say to your Republican colleagues um, in the Senate? Um, as their responsibility. Yes, the bill name is changed as President Obama said in his eulogy, but what is the next step? What is the next frontier for voting rights in the name of Mr. Lewis and all of the members of the CBC?
9: You know, unfortunately, um, the most obvious thing is is that we need to uh, pass the Voting Rights Act, but because of COVID, now we have to make sure that people don't have to put their lives at risk to vote. So we need to be able to vote at home where it's safe. And so that's the next that's the next frontier in terms of voting rights is to pass the Voting Rights Act so we are responsive to the Supreme Court that gutted it and told us we had to fix it. Okay, so we should fix it. But now we have to do double duty because of COVID, we have to make sure that, uh, that people can vote safe. I mean, all of those people that turned out to vote in Wisconsin and 50 of them, wound up with COVID, you know? And so we have to make sure that they don't um, really come up with ways to subvert the vote. Now, you know, Angela, that I spend time in Africa and I work on promoting democracy in Africa and go over and tell the African countries they should have elections. Well, I don't have much to say to them right now, because they can look back at us and say, hmm, why don't you go clean up what's going on in your house? I mean, it's pretty pathetic that our country after 240 plus years that we're still struggling for our democracy, for the right to vote. But unfortunately with the president that we have now, he is cooking up all sorts of dirty tricks to figure out how to slow the post office down, reduce the number of polling places, not allow people to vote at home, uh, make sure they don't get their ballot in time. So where they've applied to vote by home at home, then they can't go to the polls. So all sorts of shenanigans are going on now to make sure that he stays in power. And so in John Lewis's name, and in the name of the 154,000 people that died because of COVID, and you and I know that a large percentage of those are African American, we need to register five people for every person that passed away because of COVID. Even Herman Cain, Herman Cain, Republican, who went to a rally that Trump planned, didn't have his mask on, died today.
0: I posted your picture of you talking to Louie Gomer to put his mask on in committee. I love the power stance in that picture, but also I love that you're being the healthcare professional you are. Um, And speaking of past lives that I think is not too distant, you are an activist yourself, um, an organizer yourself. And just like Mr. Lewis, before you got to Congress or before that, the, the California State Assembly where you were the uh, first black woman speaker, um, you were on the streets with a lot, like a lot of the young folks who are out here right now protesting to see justice really happen, to see equity, equity and equality really happen in this country. One of the last things we know, Mr. Lewis did in Washington, DC Congressman Bass, is to go and stand in the center of Black Lives Matter Plaza, right in front of the White House, which is just poetic justice to me. But I would love to hear from you, um, in addition to standing in solidarity, um, both figuratively and literally, what else can we do to honor um, Mr. Lewis's legacy uh, and your own as you work to legislate around these issues that are so important to seeing the advancement um, of the causes that folks are really literally hitting the streets for right now? What are some of the things that we should Well, look?
9: well first of all, I love that that was his last public yeah. act. You know, he went to the hospital right after that. Mm-hmm. And I think he did that, Now, I didn't talk to him, but this is what I imagine he did. That was his passing of the baton to the next generation. I mean, one of the last acts I'm going to do on this earth is to go symbolically tell the next generation, I stand with you. I stand with you. And that's why I'm standing on Black Lives Matter Square. And so to me, that means that we have to answer that call. We have to answer. We can't say that we respect Mr. Lewis and we don't act. And so that's what, that's what we have to do. And I'm I'm proud to do that. I feel the weight of that responsibility on my shoulders, but I embrace it, and I'm going to carry it with me. When I feel down or discouraged, I got to say, you know what? Mr. Lewis would not stand for that. (laughs) I don't want to have that lecture in my ear.
0: Don't give up. Don't give in. But um, I am going to yield you your time because now I'm crying. Uh, <laughs> and I'm so thankful for you and how you fight for us every single day when we know it and when we don't see it. I'm just so, so grateful for your friendship, for your mentorship. And because I know you're carrying the legacy of Mr. Lewis with you, I'm so grateful that you can make time today, Miss Bass.
9: Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you.
0: love you. This was good. I really am like, I'm like, I don't even have tissue over here. But that was, that's so true. That is exactly what he was doing.
9: All right. We'll see you soon. Thank
0: you.
8: This is a long way from growing up in rural Alabama, from the sit-ins, the Freedom Rides, the March on Washington, the March from Selma to Montgomery. In my younger life, when I was growing up, I, I saw those signs that said, white men, colored men, white women, colored women, white waiting, colored waiting. And then coming here the first time in 1963 to meet with President Kennedy and to come back and to be honored by the first African American president. It's amazing, it's unbelievable. I was deeply inspired and moved by the action of Rosa Parks uh, in 1955 when I was 15 years old in the 10th grade. And later I heard the words of Dr. King on the radio, it seemed like he was saying to me, John Lewis, you too can do something. And I would ask my mother, ask my father, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, why segregation, why racial discrimination? And they would say, that's the way it is. Don't get in the way, don't get in trouble. But Dr. King inspired me to get in trouble. And I would never forget after the sit-ins and during the Freedom Rise and during the campaign, Uh, President John F. Kennedy, listen to him, he inspired me. And later meeting his brother, Robert Kennedy, inspired me to continue to push. And even today, uh, I feel like I'm continuing the work that individuals like Dr. King and others, President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy have started.
0: It is now my pleasure to be joined by three people who are not only former colleagues of mine, but also family. Uh, Latrice Powell, Brandon Garrett, and Stephanie Young. Welcome you all and thank you so much for making the time and creating the opportunity to have this conversation about our favorite John Lewis memory. So thank you all for joining us.
10: Hey, thanks for having us.
0: And we're all together. Yes, absolutely. So I wanted to just take a step back, you know, for the last several days, um, people have been celebrating John Lewis's life, commemorating him, and so much of the coverage has been focused on who he was as he walked across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, but very little attention has been paid to who John Lewis was as a legislator and in the halls of Congress. And during our tenure as the CBC staff, starting in 2011, um, we got to spend some time with him. And so I wanted to just share some of our favorite memories. Um, Latrice, I want to start with you. You, of course, worked with, uh, worked with Congressman Lewis up until his last day um, on Capitol Hill as you're the deputy floor director for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So you can definitely share current memories, but I do want us to take it back as well.
11: Um so I think my um the most recent memory I have of Mr. Lewis is um trading pictures. So when he wasn't here, he was um at his house in um, DC and we would kind of trade pictures. He'd send me a picture, and I sent him a picture, and so I got a chance to keep seeing him. And we just kind of talk about like what flowers I was going to plant or what he was planting in his garden. And so that's like the most recent memory. Um, I think one of my most fondest memories of Mr. Lewis is when we went to Ghana. Um, I was on the codel with uh, Mr. Lewis and Speaker Pelosi and some other members of the Congressional Black Caucus, and it was uh, mind blowing to see the continent of Africa. Um, for the first time with Mr. Lewis. I mean, there were people, once they found out he was there, they were following us around and chanting his name. And um, he had been there several times and he was just so calm and collected, but he always like took time to say, hey, how are you doing? Or, you know, isn't this special? Or, you know, just when we were having like moments and so sad, he would just kind of come by and just kind of nudge you a little bit. So. I think that's my greatest memory of Mr. Lewis in the last year, um, which was which was amazing. He was so amazing to me and so many other
0: people. Thanks, Trees. Thank you. Steph, your um, your role for us at the time, there's a little bit of feedback, but your role for us at the time of uh, being with the CBC was communications director. And I still say all the time, you're our in, internal communications <laughs> strategist. And so just for a moment, if you could, um, give us the opera like the the vision of who he was communicating who he was as a legislator and someone who we got to walk past and almost rub shoulders with really in the halls of congress talk to us a little bit about the story they're not really telling on here right now
12: yeah so well i feel like i have a big privilege because mr lewis is my congressman yes. and there's people in your life that you don't ever remember meeting um they're just there and that was mr lewis he was at our church all the time the church that my father pastored in atlanta big bethel amy church on auburn avenue um when he was running for congress my father supported him um in his first race so um there's those fond memories as a child just seeing this person come and be kind and be loving um but to see him as an adult and walk the halls of Congress uh, and walk really, you know, beside him at times, the CBC jobs initiative that we did, which was um, an amazing undertaking that I can't believe that we did um, (laughs) (laughs) all together. And it worked out (laughs) and, um, you know, just being able to, to see him up close and personal On the ground um, in Atlanta um, during that time where black unemployment was around 16.6%, I think, um, extremely high, obviously. uh, And he just never lost the common touch, you know? And I think that um, sometimes when people acquire power, and they grow, you know, into these these figures. Uh, they they sometimes lose themselves, and he just never did. Uh, and you always felt welcomed, always felt loving. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what people do. It's, it really it really matters um, how they made you feel, right? And he always, I know, made us feel loved, important, special. Uh, and I would always like remind him like, oh, you know I'm, I'm Bishop Young's daughter. And he'd be like, I know who you are. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay <laughs> I'll stop saying that. But I mean, he just always made you feel welcomed. and. What I love, too, is that, you know, when people are telling similar stories, preaching to the chickens, all the stories that he would tell, you never got tired of hearing any of that. You were never like, oh, I heard that before. You still felt joy from hearing those stories. You could still actually physically see him in that chicken coop preaching to the chickens. So, I mean, he's. He was a good person and good people stay with you. And um, I know that we're all blessed to have the opportunity to work with him, to have heard him in the CBC meetings. As those of you who don't know, CBC meetings are epic. I wish it was a rally TV <laughs> <CD> show <laughs> <about> <laughs> CBC meetings. Angela would be screaming at us if we didn't take notes.
1: Never did
0: <laughs> notes. I never took notes. I took notes. <laughs> you know, all Brandon. the notes. Brandon's notes would be like, oh, what? <laughs> I me what were
12: like, <laughs> tomorrow tomorrow what we don't know but it was Points. fun still so. <laughs> but I one of my I, I also got the chance to go back to um to selma and walk the edmund pettus bridge with him yes. when i worked for a congressman or the democratic whip at the time skinny hoyer and it was my niece's 18th birthday i'll never forget this i said mr lewis it's my niece's 18th birthday can you just shoot a little video for her and he did it and he did it and like he didn't even he he was getting his food. Okay. He was literally put his food on his plate and he recorded a video for my niece. So to, to see this person who never lost a common touch, right. And to understand the, the impact that he had holistically, not just on how you felt, but like the building of the, the, um, African-American museum, which, at the White House, I got the privilege of leading um, the team when it came to opening the museum. So all of these things that he's touched, his lasting legacy. Um, you know, I know it's a sad time because we we had to see him go, but also it's a triumphant time because he lived. He lived a marvelous and wonderful life. So, and I'm glad that he's always going to be my congressman. So. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Brandon, um, Steph brought up the
0: "For the People" jobs initiative, mm-hmm. um, which was a five-city tour, and Atlanta was one of those cities. Of course, we worked with Congressman Lewis and Congressman Johnson in pulling mm-hmm. off that jobs so tour. I want to start with you with any special memories from the jobs tour with Mister <laughs> Lewis. Not all the memories, just yeah. Mister Lewis specifically. And um, I want Latrice and Steph to chime in there too. You know, I got some as well, but I want. Yeah.
12: To-
10: Um, I think what I learned on the job tour is that Mr. Lewis is a much better person than I am. (laughs) Um, As as, as frustrated as we were and as like it was it was really hot um, in Atlanta. We so we started in we did this five city job tour. as Stephanie mentioned unemployment black unemployment was 16.6 unemployment in general was like at least 10.1 something like that and so we came up with this idea to do a job, a jobs tour. And we got to go to Atlanta, Georgia. And we got to see Mr. Lewis in his element with the people that he represents and serves. And so we had this crazy line. I mean, obviously unemployment was at at the at its highest. Um, and so Mr. Lewis saw that everyone was in need, and he actually took it on upon himself to go outside and speak to everybody and calm them down and tell them that their opportunity is right in the door. He would bring water. He would, I mean, he would just sit there and just be present with people. And that is something that I think a lot of us forget. Like, I always forget. I know that there's an end goal and I have to get that done. So I'm just like, no, 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 we have to get this done. We have to get these people in. I'm in a rush for no reason. And Mr. Lewis is like, let's just calm down and let's help the people. We're here doing this jobs tour for the people. And he was a constant reminder of of servant leadership. And he is always at first a servant to the communities he served, whether it be in Troy or whether it be in Atlanta, whether it be in Washington, D.C. And so that's my, I guess, that's my, from the jobs tour, that is my favorite member of the tour overall. And that's my favorite member, one of my favorite members of Mr. Lewis.
0: Brandon, I have to agree with you. I remember when he was like, you know, the cars are backed up to the freeway. Right.
10: Yeah. In
0: that moment, um, he was like, "And the people are hot; they need water." So he's like <laughs> We're like, "Wait, we can do it." And he's like, "No, I'm doing rolling up his sleeves and getting yeah. ready to do it." But I have to be honest with you; that was a favorite memory. But I had mostly only known known Michael. Um, I knew mm-hmm. some of the personal office staff at that time. Micheline was still there, but um, other than that, I hadn't gotten to know until we went into the communities the personal Mm -hmm. office staff in districts for most of these members. Mm -hmm. And what I remember, I don't know if you guys remember this, we went to dinner with um, the district office staff the night before the jobs initiative job tour, and they were as remarkable, amazing, likable, affable, and warm and humble as Mr. Lewis. And I think Mm -hmm. in that moment, I really was like, this guy's personality is so contagious, it permeates his staff, right? So that was one of my favorite things, like to be that type of leader that can impact your team so that they are, you know, as warm and as calm, as you said, Brandon, calming, soothing (laughs) presence in the middle of a storm and trying to make sure that we actually serve people was major Latrice and um, Steph and Brandon, too. When we got back from the jobs tour in the five cities, of course, we had the jobs, um, The what do we call that bill, Brandon? The CBC the, jobs? Uh, it was the, jobs
10: the CBC jobs plan. We did a, we kind of, it wasn't a bill, we just compared our know. bill. We said the Republican no jobs bill. Obama's.
0: We had a bill.
10: Legislation.
0: We did have a bill. We had a bill, the Brandon. Job. The plan first, then the bill. Oh,
10: the the jobs bill. Yeah, yes. for the people jobs though.
0: <laughs> yes, yes,
10: so the, the first jazz,
0: recommendation. <laughs> Y'all welcome right. to the CBC family, this is what we do. But uh, <laughs> first the recommendations, and I think the dope part is even after the tour, Mr. Lewis and his office were intimately engaged with the recommendations and legislating mm. around that. What we haven't talked about as much, and Treese, I think, and, uh, and for you, Steph, currently works with When We All Voted is a key part of that organization. But in addition to that, we know Mr. Lewis is known for voting rights. He didn't stop with walking across that bridge, though. He legislated. Trish, you got to witness something so profound on the House floor this year, when or last year, I'm sorry, 2019, when HR4 made it to the floor. Can you talk to us about what you saw with Mr. Lewis being able to chair um, with the passage of that bill?
11: So I think that um, whenever anyone gets in the chair to chair, there have only been maybe 11,000 people who've been members of Congress and even fewer people who've actually got a chance to chair or preside as um, Speaker Pro Tem. So uh, we had Mr. Lewis come in and he was just like, oh, I haven't done this in such a long time. And I'm so nervous. And I'm just like, in my mind, I'm thinking, how can you be nervous about anything and he was just like, oh, I, you know, just I wanna make sure that I get it right. And so he talked, so we're in this room and we're talking and then he's talking to the parliamentarian. and then it's time for him to go up. And now he had just told me he was nervous. And I mean, the moment his foot hit the rostrum, I guess the nerves were gone and he <laughs> was perfect. He had his own flair, he had his own style. And most importantly, he just made everyone feel like it was a heavy moment, but it was also a joyous moment. So we were all just like, oh, my God. So I, people were, like, looking around saying, it's Mr. Lewis. He's in the chair because he had he had not gotten in the chair since we um, took the house back. And so they were like, oh, he, there he goes, there he goes. And so everyone was just, like, so quiet. And he didn't have to, like, work extra hard to, like, bring attention back to, to the chair. They were all just so Um, caught up in the moment, and I think for me, I just, I never thought that I would get to see something like that, right? There's so many other moments that that have happened on the floor, and you're just like, oh, that's cool, or oh, that's great, but then that, I felt like that was history, Um, so it was, it was fantastic to see him there, and he knew he did a good thing that day, and it was great. It was awesome to be there.
0: I love that, (laughs) too, because
11: I'm sorry. Yeah, but there's also, so we actually did a enrollment correction and now HR force actually named the John Lewis, um, voting rights act. So that's, that was amazing to actually be there and to witness that and to have, um, to have everyone realize it was happening. You know, there was so much talk about, oh, we should do this and we should do that. And to like, just be a part of the team that's like, okay, how do you make this happen? Oh, it's that simple, okay. And to make it happen and to um, Mr. Kildy, who was a longtime um, friend of his, who had been doing his proxy voting for him, I was able to put him in this chair and he was able to do that. And so he was just like, you don't know what this means to me. And, you know, maybe there were tears, maybe there weren't tears, but it was, definitely that was definitely a big moment as well, the name and after Mrs. Lewis.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. HR4 now named the John Lewis Voting Rights, is it Voting Rights Advancement Act or Voting Rights Act? Voting Rights Act. Very good. I, Yeah. Very good. Mm-hmm. So um, without, we can't leave without talking about something very important. Steph brought up CBC Wednesdays. The CBC mm-hmm. lunch is very, very important, I think, to our memories of Mr. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Steph, um, because you like sauce so much, why don't you put the mm-hmm. sauce on it for us and tell us why the CBC lunches on Wednesday for us was so special with
12: Mr. Lewis. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I just, like, I have to preface this by saying, I really do love black people and the way that we are. <laughs> no and this one is the blackest, blackest thing you could be a part of. It does not matter, we're with members of Congress, okay. black. Um, and it feels like a family, it really does feel like a family lunch or dinner, even though it's It's like a reunion. It's like a reunion every Wednesday.
10: Wednesday. Yeah. I think it's the time they can be themselves.
12: Yeah. And it's like, and Mm -hmm. like the fact that we eat soul food and it's like, it's this moment where it's like, we are completely black and we are here together, you know? And it is, it's such an inspiring moment to hear all of these brilliant people around the table talking about issues that impact our country and that will impact our country for years and years to come and their experiences, right? So like they're sharing all of their wisdom as to why they are going to make certain decisions. They're working together, they're disagreeing, you know, they're communicating. Um, so there's so many life lessons in that moment. And it, you all know, like when certain members talk, Others members, members kind of quiet down. And Mr. Lewis was that member, right? So when mm-hmm. he would speak on an issue, people would be quiet and they would listen to what he had to say. Mm-hmm. Um, and he could always tie in what happened in the past to this moment in which we're living now and kind of really be- bring back that perspective in that moment. So I I, I mean, I will always love our CBC lunches. I kind of wish I could just still, hey, can we come in just for a lunch? To, <laughs> like is- old staff to sit yeah. around the like they should. This should yeah. be an alumni moment for all of us. Right, right? Right. There's something yeah. so special about that. And to be, in essence, you know, someone of their foot soldiers, right? To like mm-hmm. take what they want to do, um, you know, and move the ball forward on that in a, in a way. And, um, you know, he was, he provided that leadership. And no matter. Who's in a group, no matter how senior experienced people are, everybody needs a leader, right? And Mr. Mr. Lewis was a leader, um, and he was a leader in such a gentle and fair way. And I know, I don't know if you want to talk about this story, Angela, but I remember one of the things he said <laughs> in the meeting, <laughs> you actually put it on your Instagram the other day, like a little saying he said, because he was very nonviolent, um, but I can't even remember who he was oh, talking no. about. But he he mentioned how you want to do a non-violence slap on someone. Um, (laughs) And, um, you know, we all like cracked up and obviously we'll remember that moment forever. And Yeah. yeah. So what I thought Steph
0: was going to bring up, she's right about his leadership in the meetings. But more often than not, Mr. Lewis would come to the meetings when they were over. So Brandon, right. <laughs> <laughs> tell us why. What was happening at the end of the lunch? That's when we got to eat, and Mr. Income yeah. it would that's come right our- it took to- us. Right, right, yes. and, and
10: yes. it was always Mr. was uh, Michael, his right. chief of the staff, and Mr. Lewis would be in at the end, and he'd always sort of sit there and eat with us and sort of just talk about the meeting and. What we could do and sometimes just joke around with us because before the meeting starts there's all this pressure to make sure everything's set up right and make sure like you know one member is going to talk about their finance bill and do you know enough about their finance bill or the communications plan or you know just are we everything in ethics or whatnot just making sure that we're together so there's all this pressure beforehand we're just kind of sitting there just paying attention learning observing and then at the end of it we get to relax and mr lewis relaxed with us you know, and he would he he would have his chicken, and he would have his lemonade,
0: his sweet tea, <laughs> and definitely sweet
10: tea. Yeah, now I, I, w- I wish I was there the one meeting when they um because our boss Mr. Cleaver is a vegetarian, but he always knew to make sure that he had Plus that salmon and put salmon. I'm sorry, and, and his nut like the little his Girl granola baby. stuff, right? Yeah. but he always knew to bring still have that Gates barbecue there and that fried chicken there. I would I would Latrice was there when they brought in uh, when they had the vegan meal or something. I was, <laughs> sorry, I'm off. that
0: <laughs> I didn't know about that. But yes, But all I want to talk about was how Mr. Lewis used to come in and eat with us later. And we had a bunch of interns who had the great opportunity mm-hmm. to learn from right. so almost figuratively sit at Mr. Lewis's knee. So, I mean, we've just been tremendously blessed, y'all. And I just wanted to take this moment, one, to look at your faces because I miss all of you. I'm proud of each of you, and I'm so grateful that we could share that part of Mr. Legacy, oh Lord, Mr. Lewis's legacy <laughs> together. Um, yeah. It was a game changer, you know, to mm. be able to walk um, with an icon and knowing how much he changed for us before we were even born, and then to be mm. able to learn from him. is just such a powerful thing. So I just really wanted to Take this moment and to love on y'all. After you know all of the memorial services and arrangements have happened, and he's you know lying in state in uh, the state capital of Alabama and in the state, ca- I mean the D.C. capital, na- the nation's capital building. It was just important that we have a moment to humanize him um, mm-hmm. and to talk about who he was as a legislator and as someone we got to see in the Count Cannon House Office Building. Um, yes. you know, walking down the street near his row house in DC and, um, you know, eating lunch at the CBC with him <laughs> and Steph being like, it's a press moment for the water handout.
12: As a- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was Angela, can I just bring up one more thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that like, since I work now in voting, um, yeah. A voting organization when we all vote, I think it's just so incredibly important for us as African-Americans to really recognize the sacrifice that he made for us. And I know that from research, a lot of younger people don't necessarily always kind of feel that connection of people who fought for you, but we we just lost two two people who fought for us, Reverend yeah. C.P. Mm-hmm. Vivian and John Lewis. And you know, we're we're coming up on the most important election, not just of our lifetime, but for our children's children, right, um, generations to come. And I just it can't be lost on us the impact that he made um, when it came to fighting, even to his last breath, for our right to vote. And we cannot take any of that for granted. I don't care if it's good messaging or bad messaging. I think it's super important that we all remember that and know that people sacrificed for us to even have the privilege to say, I don't want to vote. Okay. So (laughs) I I just really hope that like, if you don't get anything from, from this moment, just know that this man (laughs) literally until his dying day has fought for you to have a voice and you got to use it.
0: I love that. That is what he would call good trouble, necessary <laughs> trouble. And the best way to make a difference, um, not only in our country but in the world, is to serve people with the good old nonviolent slap. And that's <laughs> how we get to that. So thank you all so, so very much. I'm so grateful to spend this time with you and to um have spent the amount of time that we've spent together <clears throat> learning, growing, and serving the people. Uh there's just not a better person that could have led us. So to our servant leader, to our hero, to Mr. Lewis, we thank you, we honor you, and we will keep getting into good trouble. I love you guys, thank you. Love, love you, you too. Bye, love you guys. Bye.
13: People always ask us, what was it like to work for Congressman Lewis? What was he like up close? What was he like in real life? And it is too difficult to explain. So our answer was always the same. He's just as you may imagine, but better. And that no day was ever the same. What you know about the congressman is true. He was a gentleman. He was truly of the people and a peaceful soul. When he came into the office every single day, he would greet every staffer, every fellow, every intern with a good morning, sir, a good morning, ma'am. He would end every request, every successful speech, every successful bill, every hearing, every markup with, thank you, thank you, young brother, thank you, sister, thank you, my child, or my dear. As staff, we felt it was our duty to create and maintain a space where the congressman could be completely and wholly himself. In college, we often say that there's the freshman 15 that you gain a little bit around. In our office, there was the John Lewis 20, because he and Michael would bring in lunch and far, far too often dessert because some cake or some pie or some brownie would be calling out to them in the grocery store, and they would want everyone to come together and sit down and share a meal. We were a little family, a little enclave, a lot of drama, a lot of fun and so much love. He broke down those work barriers, and he welcomed our parents, our spouses, our children, our grandchildren, our nieces and nephews, our godchildren, and our friends into the circle, making them fall equally in awe of his greatness. Sometimes the world got a little glimpse of our nest during these impromptu gatherings, and certain videos may go viral. Well, we were like a well loyal machine when it came to policy and casework. Although we were like that in public, he enjoyed stirring things up in the office. You might call him a little bit of an instigator. He would get us in trouble with Michael, try and corner us with questions, and stir things up and with time you knew not to take the bait and you would learn and to say oh no congressman you're not gonna get me today and he would laugh I think that that's what I'm gonna miss the most I'm gonna miss his laugh and not the one that you see on television you know but the one where he would be sitting back and shooting the wind And he would throw back his head, and he would just laugh from his heart, from his belly, from his soul. So many workers are often taught to be invisible. But with Mr. Lewis, he always saw you and made you feel special and worthy. Dr. King and Rosa Parks spent time with him as a teenager, and it changed the course of his life. So I believe that he spent every waking moment paying it forward. He could be absolutely exhausted, but still take one more picture, spend one more moment, especially with young people. This meant that we were always, always, always behind schedule. So the very first lesson in staffing the Congressman was to learn to operate on John Lewis time, which translates into late, but trusting that it would always work out. As he told everyone, he could outwalk the entire staff. And so our duty was to keep up. When it was time to move, we did. But when it was time to be present and the congressman needed a little bit of quiet, we would try to create that space. He would slow down to appreciate and absorb the majesty of the moment for his own mental archives. Just as we tried to preserve the sanctity of his space, he allowed us to be our true and authentic selves, just the very best version. He found staff who were unique, and I think represented either a little bit of his personality or what he needed to complement it. We made our ways to Mr. Lewis through very random paths, coincidences, some strategies and others, and for believers through divine intervention. He didn't hire based on a resume, but your energy, your being, your essence, your passion, and your potential. We were a medley group of musicians, air traffic controllers, photographers, dancers, social workers, entertainers, entertainers, artists, historians, and every once in a while, an actual lawyer or a political scientist. He got all into our business (laughs) and was there in spirit or in person for the big moments. In the same way that he always took a call from Mrs. Lewis or John Miles, he let us drop everything in a family emergency. And generations of children have fond memories of hanging out in his office as their parents work nearby. He let us be our spell ourselves, especially when it came to civic participation. He let us organize, protest, testify, and always, always, always vote.
0: We have Congresswoman Barbara Lee. Congresswoman Terry Sewell, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver, and Congressman Hank Johnson. I just wanted to uh, talk to you all about Congressman Lewis's record as a legislator. We've heard so much over the course of the last week, and much of the conversation has been about who Mr. Lewis was walking across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. But people don't often understand that after he crossed this bridge, he walked into a very robust career as a public servant and as an elected official. And you all saw that up close and personal, not only as a fellow legislator and colleague, but also as a friend. And so the first question I have for you all is really more of a rapid round because we also have heard so much of the seriousness about mr Uh, lewis but what's your most memorable or your funniest moment uh, that you shared with congressman lewis and i will start with you miss sewell because you're already smiling so you must have one
14: listen i just am in awe of john you know growing up in selma and uh, getting a chance a uh, year after year to see the foot soldiers come back to reenact Bloody Sunday, and then to grow up and be able to call John Lewis, my colleague, was such an honor. Um, we had a special connection because of Selma, and I shared um, 10 times, I know that Barbara Lee has probably been on that pilgrimage more than that, But for 10 times, the whole 10 years I've been in Congress, I've had an opportunity to co-host the Faith in Politics um, Pilgrimage. Um, The opportunity to walk in the footsteps of John Lewis with John Lewis through Birmingham, Montgomery, and then Selma is a treat of a lifetime. I think that to me, the pinch me moments that I had with John are the private moments that we had on that bus going from Selma to Montgomery uh, and, you know, I would laugh and call him the boy from Troy. And he called me the girl from Selma. And we'd laugh about how far this state, our state has got, come and our nation has come. And I would always say, but old battles have become new again. And he would remind me with that, with that, you know, grin of his, that effervescence. He exuded love. It poured out of him. His whole uh, life was really a living embodiment of the triumph of love over hate. And he would say, but Sewell, you know, our, the be- the best days of this nation are ahead of us. And I'm like, but John, but John. And it was always that optimism. You know, I am, um, my my heart is heavy because I just wonder how we're going to restore the Voting Rights Act without John. He was so much the face of it, the voice of it. And while I know he gave us the roadmap We can all close our eyes and hear him. He was consistent. And every time he would talk about it on that bridge, the apex of that bridge, he would say it over and over again. But it still seems, um, it just seems like a daunting
0: task without him. Yeah, I understand that for sure. How about you, Mr. Johnson?
15: Well, I I smiled at your question because uh, there've been so many times that I have been on flights with uh, Congressman Lewis and walked through the airports with him and just to um, marvel at how people just instantly connect with him, they, they don't feel ill at ease in approaching him. I mean, now, now I'm a different kind of guy. People see me and they might say, hey, But, you know, they feel a little reticent to to come and approach me and start talking about with somebody like John Lewis. I mean, even children just walking up to him and then to see him interacting with people brought a smile to my face. And also all of the times that I've seen him dancing in public. We've had a couple of uh, instances where we've been together and that happy song breaks out. And he always starts dancing on it. When he starts dancing, he just starts moving. And uh, then other people come and, and join in. And it's just really a happy affair. And to, so to see him, you know, I've seen him unguarded like that. He's not really a guarded individual, but, you know, to, to see him just let loose. Uh, so many times, just um, really brings a smile to to my eyes and makes me um, appreciate how much of a people person that John Lewis was. Love
0: that. How about you, Miss Lee? Well, thanks a lot, Angela,
3: for this conversation tonight. Yeah, it, it's been a pretty uh, emotional day, an emotional week, uh, really uh, a year that. that um, you know, we knew one day this day would come, but we didn't expect it to ever come. Uh, and I can't imagine a world without John Lewis. It's still hard to come to grips with. Uh, it's it's quite frankly surreal. And so I'm glad you asked about funny moments <laughs> to help us through this. Uh, and um, John had quite a sense of humor as everyone knows. At just one moment, it was so it, it cracked me up when forty five was elected, right? Or you know, the occupant of the White House. You know, there was some debate about who's going to go to the inauguration, who's not going to go, who's going to go, who's not going to go. Some wanted to go and wear kente fine in your face. Some were not sure, and I was one who said, "No, I'm ready to go and walk out." <laughs> so John and I talked about this, and he says. You gonna go? I said, you gonna go? And we both said, no. (laughs) Neither one of us is gonna go (laughs) at the same time. And so he gave me that kind of backbone and courage I needed to to boycott that inauguration. But he took it even further. I said, okay, John, what what are they gonna say about you not going? I mean, they expect me to do something crazy. He said, I'm gonna say, okay, Cleaver. He you said, know, I didn't go. You know, John didn't go. I didn't go. I'm like, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so so John told me, he says, I'm going to say he's an illegitimate president and call him a racist. I said, you are? He said, yes, Barbara, I'm going to say that. you got to speak the truth. That really, like, took me uh, back. <laughs> I said, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> and that was John uh, in in his, I think, best moments, you know, for me to witness and be with him uh, in a joking kind of way, because it was really funny mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to walk to that point. And though I think that was an example of how he always said, you got to speak the truth. You know, don't back down. You've got to keep moving forward, but you have to tell the truth. And that's what, you know, when you start dancing around issues, uh, John would cut straight to the chase and say, it's truth telling time. So, you know, we're going to have to remember that about John is, as we do our work uh, and pick up this baton. Because on Capitol Hill, so often we kind of fudge stuff. You know, sometimes we have to nuance words. Sometimes we do, you know, say it this way versus that way. Well, John was a straight shooter and he said what was on his mind and what he believed in and what was in his heart. It was always right.
0: Mm, I love that. And so, speaking of illegitimate presidencies, um, now I go to, to the man who writes those weekly devotionals and the Civility Caucus co-chair, <laughs> <laughs> Congressman Emmanuel Cleaver, who I, I don't think disagrees too much with an illegitimate presidency, but I do want to come to you because you are a jokester yourself. Um, so I know you've got a story or two. I
16: should do. Let me <laughs> tell you, first of all, I grew up in Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Uh, John Lewis never was a part of the SCLC. He, uh, uh, people thought that he was, but he was he, he, he uh, was actually connected more to Dr. King than to, to the organization. When he came across the bridge, if you would look at the footage, if the, if the, if the, the people who are viewing this ever see the footage mm-hmm. again, John Lewis is walking next to a guy whose name was Jose Williams, who uh, attended Morehouse. He was a chemist by training neither one of them could swim. And people in SCLC said they don't have to beat John Lewis and Jose, just throw them over in the water. Uh, That'll end that uh, part of the the, the movement right there. Uh, But it it, it went a little further. Uh, 10 years ago, John Lewis, uh, along with my wife, uh, Steny Hoyer and uh, Roy Blunt and his wife, uh, we ended up in Australia uh together and we uh went out on a boat one day to the to the coral reefs and if you've you've been out there it's the most beautiful thing in the world you can see these white coral reefs under the water so Hoya puts on his uh uh leather swim stuff uh, uh rubber swim stuff everybody gets ready to jump in the water my wife jumps right out there in the ocean john lewis can't swim so john lewis uh puts on his diving gear. Let me me say here, I got some witnesses uh, on this. So John Lewis puts on his diving gear and he allows three men to talk to him, not to get into a swimming pool, not the Alabama river, but the ocean. (laughs) And he gets out in the water with three men around him and John can't swim a lick. All he can do is, and he's hitting the water just like this and they're holding him up. And so John comes back in the boat and I take him in the back of the boat. Michael was there with him. Uh, So we go in the back and I say, John, you know, if anybody ever tells uh, me that you don't uh, uh, mean what you say and that you believe and love everybody. I said, here we are out here in the ocean off the coast of Australia. You get out in the boat depending on three white men that you don't even know. (laughs) <laughs> to hold you up, and I said, "So I know you believe what you say," uh, and but the other part of it, I, just so your your viewers won't get the, won't get the wrong impression, John Lewis can't dance. Now he can move, he can move, but but John, uh, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have any rhythm. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean.
3: Rhythm all his own.
15: That <laughs> is, yeah, he that dances is. to his own rhythm. Maybe? That's right. There's that's
3: a happy right. dance. Nobody else could do the happy dance like he did.
15: <laughs> yeah, that's
0: right. Protecting, Miss Lee, all his shade y'all That's got. right. <laughs> um, Mr. Cleaver, I guess that means that we'll be seeing a video of you soon dancing then. It sounds like <laughs> a challenge. We could, we still got Mr. Lewis's happy video, so it'll just have to be that kind yeah. of challenge. Um, I so appreciate that because so often, and I think you all know this, but as um, a past CBC executive director, I see you all as CBC family. And so I'm super protective of you all as humans first. And so I think it's so important for uh, members of the audience and the viewing public to recognize that you all are human beings Um, and you're not just grieving the loss of a colleague, but also of a dear loved one. Um, Congresswoman Sewell, to that point, You worked diligently to ensure that Mr. Lewis would be able to lie in state in the Alabama State Capitol. Can you talk to us a little bit about that journey?
14: I just wanted John to have the hero's welcome that he deserved as Alabama's native son. And it was my honor to uh, approach our governor about allowing uh, John um, not only to cross that bridge one more time, but to be opened, welcomed uh, into the state capitol. When, he's, uh, when you think about his first time that he made that crossing, he wasn't invited in. Um, but it was really important to me that we, we allowed John to have the hero's welcome he deserved. And so the governor and her chief of staff, it was great that her chief of staff was Joe Bonner. You know, Joe was a member of Congress representing Mobile. He's now the chief of staff for the governor. And Joe saw the vision and um, was just so helpful. And we were able to get John in that horse-drawn carriage, I don't know if you saw it, from Brown Chapel, uh, that final bridge crossing. Um, and it was so moving and so wonderful. And people came out, Selma came out and, you know, there was rose petals on that bridge and just John. And, and then for that, uh, well, first of all, for the apex of the bridge, I don't know if you saw the Alabama state troopers saluting John. It was just important to me. I don't know if they mentioned it, but John is the first African American ever to lie in state in the Alabama uh, State House. And the last person to lay in state in the Alabama State House was George Wallace. So, what perfect bookend uh, for my state to have John Lewis. Uh, be the last person to lie in state, and um, to have the governor welcome him and an Alabama delegation welcome him uh, was so befitting. You know, I um, I'm just uh, it was a proud moment for the state of Alabama. Now we obviously have a lot of a lot of work to do. We have a bridge that needs to be renamed. We have a whole bunch of other stuff that we need to do. But clearly, the most befitting tribute to John is uh, is if we in Congress can truly restore the Voting Rights Act. To its full strength and its full protections, by passing, and we have renamed HR four the John Robert Lewis Voting Rights Act of uh, 2020. But you know, I, um, I, I, it was a proud moment for the state of Alabama. It was a proud moment uh, for his family, just to see his family from Troy, Alabama, come up those Capitol steps to see the military escort. The fact that 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 John may have. Uh, once been denied access to the state house, to have him lie in state, and the overwhelming welcome, and people were standing out there for hours. There was a big thunderstorm, but people still stayed out there. Uh, it was just, um, it was wonderful. I wish, you know, I wish it was sort of like. And Barbara, you were on that pilgrimage when the first governor of Alabama, maybe four years yeah. ago, welcomed, yeah. welcomed the whole delegation in and had a yeah. dinner, John's right there. That was four yeah. years ago. Yeah. On faith and politics. Yeah. Yeah, Come full
9: circle,
14: Terry. It's come full circle, exactly. It's um, come full circle. And, you know, we're just so proud. I know that he may have represented Georgia's fifth district for 30 plus years. He'll always be Alabama's native son. And we share that. We share him and and, and that respect. And I was happy that he got a hero's welcome back from the state of Alabama. I love that.
0: Um, Congressman Cleaver, to the point around voting rights and with this new name for HR 4, John Robert, the John Robert Lewis um, Voting Rights Act of 2020, um, you've talked about, um, particularly around civility. Um, you said our failure to come together to solve our nation's problems continues to put our shared future in jeopardy. And when you think about that specifically around something that should be nonpartisan, like voting rights, what do you think you, you can say to your Republican colleagues who haven't been um, as eager to pass this legislation? Of course, it passed the House. But as uh, President Obama challenged us today, we know that it has to go much further um, to really ensure that folks have the voting rights protections they need to ensure a full um, and fair election and a, and a democracy that continues to be strengthened.
16: Well, uh, I, I think that... Uh, Many of the people who uh, are on the other side, on the Republican side, uh, do in fact understand that uh, that Voting Rights Act needs to be updated so that it complies with uh, the, the Supreme Court um, uh, edict that we that essentially uh, allows people to, to to move voting booths, voting places around, and so forth uh, without any pre clearance. Uh, but I, I think that the issue for them, for people uh, on the other side is right and wrong. And I thought that something happened today uh, that uh, I hope the nation caught. And that is uh, when President Obama mentioned that both uh, George uh, W. Bush and George H.W. Bush, both just almost um, automatically signed the voting rights law back into, to. Uh, it, it uh, existence back into existence without any debate without any problems and uh, uh so this is a this is an aberration uh and and for them i, I would not want to be in uh congress in a position uh when uh something could be d- done that would be in harmony with my faith uh that would be in harmony with my political philosophy my theology uh and and then i failed to do it because I'm afraid of how somebody else in my, uh, on my tribe or in my tribe would, might view it. This is the time for people to stand up and be right and, and say uh, the blood of righteousness flows through my veins and I shall not be moved, I'm voting for it. And I, I, I think that there are uh, enough of pe- people on the other side who can vote for it and make it into a law. Uh, I hope that they will get beyond their fear I think right now it's fear of, of, of what somebody might tweet. Uh, and, you know, I'm glad I don't do all of that because, uh, I you know, I I was telling my children I've never have in my life been scared of a tweet. I, I grew up in public housing. Uh, a lot of things that, that I was scared of, but never a tweet. Uh, and so, you know, uh, and, and I would say to these people who tweet, if you tweet it, you might have to eat it. So I think Uh, That that At this moment, we have a chance to see something happen as a result of of the funeral today. The the charge was given by both of the Bushes.
14: And John, John wrote a wonderful op-ed that was published today um, that, you know, just reminds us of what we have to do, what we have to do. And you think about voting rights, it should be nonpartisan. It was. Yeah, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was reauthorized four times under two Republican presidents, yes. as well as two Democratic presidents.
0: That's exactly right. And when you think about um, what this really drives home, it's the fact that action is required. You all don't just tout empty words. You all say exactly what you mean and then act on it. And to that point, Mr. Johnson Um, Jimmy Carter, we know, named um, Congressman Lewis to be Director of Action, speaking of, um, which is a federal agency for volunteerism. And while our jobs initiative, while I was CBC Executive Director, was not volunteer efforts, um, I know you will recall in Atlanta um, during the jobs initiative stop there, there were so many people lined up outside and the cars were backed up so far that it was literally causing traffic congestion on the freeway and mr lewis's first mind was to say it's hot out there the people are thirsty he rolls up his sleeves and has the staff carry out water so he can hand out water himself i know that because you all share atlanta in your congressional districts you've experienced that same type of effort from him that same type of work ethic can you talk to us about another moment Um, that you've shared with Mr. Lewis um, because of your shared congressional districts, uh, or at least your overlapping congressional districts.
15: Yes, Uh, the culmination of all of our encounters Mm -hmm. has to be described as that of a a teacher and a student. Um, Congressman Lewis was always one to uh, share his experience. Experience. He didn't. He didn't like wear his experience on his sleeve. I mean, but he would find a way of making sure that you understood history. And he didn't. He didn't force it on you, but he kind of like just laid it out there for you. So he he was a guy that uh, wanted me and others to know of the civil rights movement. And all of the moments during which important things happen, and giving you the background in terms of you know what led up to it. And so, Congressman Lewis was a teacher, and he was also. Uh, I, and if I would, and if he had a subject that I would have to assign to him, it would be the subject of history. He was a uh, teacher of history. Of the civil rights movement and the players in that movement, and um, and I think that's that's a way of describing the kind of um, legislator that um, Congress Congressman Lewis was. Um, he was he was someone who, you know, right now we have uh, he was so far ahead of himself. I mean, right now we have people taking names off of buildings and removing Confederate symbols, but John Lewis started the work of renaming federal buildings just as soon as he got into office. Now, for an example, the, the federal courthouse in Atlanta, the old federal courthouse in Atlanta, um, I don't know what the name of it was before it was changed to the Martin Luther King Jr., Building because they re they moved they built a new courthouse but they still use that that federal building that used to be the courthouse for federal purposes and um, Congressman Lewis I think his first act as a congressman his first piece of legislation that actually he introduced and got passed uh, of course you got to pass things you got to have Republican support as you pass things, you have to have a president that will sign it. And so all of the work that goes into getting the bill to to come to fruition, to rename that building to the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Federal Building, it still stands in Atlanta today. That was his very first act. And the reason why that is so important because people may say that, well, naming the buildings and this kind of thing is not important. What, what we see today is why it is so important because other folks had an opportunity to name their buildings for their heroes. And John Lewis started the march to name buildings after civil rights heroes, not just blacks, but whites also. And so he was, um, He was a uh, serious legislator, served for 34 years. And if you look back over that history of service, it is littered or riddled or uh, uh, I mean, those are not the right words, but it is uh, populated by measures that um, that rename buildings for people who were important to the civil rights movement.
14: And also to preserve history. I mean, we have to remember that john it was John's legislation that got the National uh, Museum of African American History and Culture. And I know you all were there when he was time and time again introducing it. And it was George W. Bush that signed it into law. And it was right. Barack Obama who got to cut the ribbon and open it up. But the reality is that even John, John, it was John's initial legislation to study doing the National Park Service trail from Selma to Montgomery. Now, I'm grateful for that because he gave us the enabling law, and that gave me the foothold to get those interpretive centers. But the reality is that John was about the business of preserving
3: the history, our history, and making sure that future generations understood that. Angela, can I follow up with that on that point before you ask me a question? When I came to Congress in 98, uh, this I think John led the effort, it, it started in 1999. A lot of people don't know this. John led the effort uh, through legislation with Joe Scarborough, Tim Romer, and Jack Quinn to rename the Department of Justice, the Robert F. Kennedy Department of Justice, and Bush, You know, the legislation was almost done and Bush decided to go on and rename that building before the the fight started in the House. And uh, it may have actually gotten to the Senate, but if it hadn't been for John, the Department of Justice would not be named the Robert F. Kennedy Department of Justice. That was a John Lewis signature uh, (laughs) renaming, uh, and a lot of
0: people don't know that. And so, Ms. Lee, what I was going to ask you is exactly along these lines, we know that Congressman Lewis has either um, authored or co-sponsored more than 1,100 bills um, during his um, 17 his, his terms in Congress. I would deem both of you progressive activist legislators. And um, given that, one of the things we know that Barack Obama challenged um, the country with in his eulogy was, we don't have to choose between protest and politics, we can do both. And one of the last things publicly Mr. Lewis did was align with that by standing at Black Lives Matter Plaza. So I would love to hear from you, Leslie, um, what are the other ways that protests can align with politics so that you all feel strengthened and un- undergirded by the movements in the streets and vice versa so that you all are legislating Uh, around the ideas I mean, the progressive um, ideals that uh, protesters have right now, activists and organizers have right now, so that we can actually live and thrive in this country in a way that aligns with what Mr. Lewis would dream and imagine for us?
3: Sure, Angela. Well, I think most members of the CBC, I know these who are with us tonight are all activists also. And John was the activist personified. And, you know, in order for uh, legislation to move, you have to have a a movement behind you so that it can move. And then you have to have a movement that understands what the strategic moves should be, such as getting co-sponsors. Like, Terry's constantly getting co-sponsors for something all the time. They have to know how the appropriations process works. I'm an appropriator. So I have to let uh, our young... Uh, movement organizers know at this point it's this is our deadline what do we need funding for give it to me let's see how we work it go to these members of congress john taught us how to do all that because he he knew how to legislate but he knew we couldn't do anything without a movement and a couple of pieces of legislation a lot of people are really shocked when i tell john supports reparations he supports hr 40 he came on quick fast on HR 40. He didn't even blink. He understood that we had to repair the damage uh, in this country. I, and most recently, mine may be one of the few last, the almost the last bill he went on was HR 100, calling for a truth, racial healing and transformation committee, which goes with HR 40. John said, put me on it. And then when we rolled it out, you should see the press statement he issued. He talked about this is the next front of the of the civil rights movement in terms of reparations and and the cut the uh, I call it come to Jesus moment the reckoning in terms of the four hundred and one years of of in sl- a year you know commemorating four hundred and one years and its relationship to systemic racism today and so John was really clear on that and uh, and so I feel in in a lot of ways so proud and honored that. Uh, it was like two months ago that, that he did this uh, on, on behalf of, and we have a movement behind that and the HR 40. But also one thing Don, John and I always talked about was defense spending. And I know that's, that's a no-no to a lot of members right now because uh, defense contractors have jobs in their districts so and we don't want people's jobs affected. So it's really hard to get uh, any member, Democrats to vote no on the defense budget, right? Uh, but John told me, and, and I come from California, and Ron Dellums, former chair of the Armed Services Committee, I worked for him for 11 years. There's no way he would vote for a defense budget that's now $738 billion. It's like, come on. And so, John, years <clears throat> ago, this must have been four or five years ago, he said, "Bar, I want to talk to you. And I went down and said, he says, I'm never going to vote for this again. I'm not voting for war. I'm not voting for this budget. And you can look at his record. I, I don't know how many years it's been. He said he wanted to be the first one up there voting no. He said, because we don't need this kind of defense budget that's taken away from uh, domestic needs and human needs. And so he had a world view, and he had a very clear progressive point of view because he knew in order to achieve racial justice and equity in this country, we had to have the resources. And he knew where the resources were, and that was in the defense budget. We talked about that a heck of a lot of time. I don't talk to a lot of members about that because I know you know where we are on, on defense in terms of the the, the uh, politics of it. But he and I could talk about that all the time. Finally let me just say to Terry you know uh, Terry has taken this this movement and John's legacy to the next level. And, and she's carrying this baton forward in, in a magnificent way. I mean, Terry is like driving some of us nuts from sunup to sundown, how she's gonna do this, how she's gonna do that. John needs this, we gotta do that. Yes, Terry, we're gonna do it. And, and but I'm just saying that because I think it was manifested in the beautiful ceremony that, that was held that she talked about earlier. And the, the unbelievable procession against, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Let me tell you, Terry, I sat here crying because I had been 17 times walking with John across that bridge. And I felt like John should be walking across there. I should be there walking with him. Terry should be there walking with him. We should be there. And it was just like this man and, and, and walking with him across that bridge. I had young people from my Martin Luther King Jr. Freedom Center. Always, which is great. Always. And my grandchildren, I mean, always. Literally 15, 20 kids every time. And, and I was the only member of Congress that did this for 17 years. And so John would always pull them aside and find a room at the hotel, for instance, to talk to them for 30, 40 minutes, mentor them, encourage them. And so this year, I said, no, I'm not even gonna ask John to do this. And he was there in Mar- was this March, was his March there? He was he, there. He came there back for the 55th to- anniversary. He was He 52. was there. And, uh, and they failing help. And do you know, he didn't even wait for me to ask. He saw those kids and he told could find a time when I can meet with them. And he did that this year with our young people. And he came to my district. We did a book signing and we had a thousand people. I have a lecture series. John came and he did that. Terry came. Terry did the lecture series. Because what I've been trying to do is connect my young people to these great icons and warriors and leaders so that they know what their duty and responsibility is. And so he not only touched uh, me personally and my family personally, but my whole district, uh, whatever, whatever Terry Sewell wants, Terry Sewell gets. And they <laughs> tell me that and whatever John Lewis was doing, I better be doing it with him or else. And that's the kind of, of magnificent, uh, legacy he leaves and you know and it's just um oh god i miss him so much you know
14: you know i just i I sometimes say to myself how could i go on uh you know when you grow up in selma i mean the legend of john lewis is as memorable to me and the people who grow up there as any bible verse or any family lore it just is you revere it and while my job is to to help advance the people that are, live in my district now. My job also is to protect the legacy that is Selma, Birmingham, and Montgomery. And what I love about John is John has sowed seeds, seeds of hope, inspiration into so many people. I'm not alone in this fight. I got a whole bunch of folks, folks on this call, people in your your, your, your listening audience, who literally are disciples of John and know that we can get, we have to pick up, we have to pick up the baton and continue this march. It's not just about getting the Voting Rights Act to back to where it was. As President Barack Obama said, it's about advancing it, moving it beyond that. How about making sure that voting day is a holiday? How about making sure it's automatic registration? So not just federal oversight, although that's Job number one, we have to get back, put the teeth back into the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And only Congress can do that. That's what the Supreme Court said in the Shelby versus Holder decision. We have to come up with a new section four to determine what states have had a history of voter discrimination such that section five, preclearance by the Justice Department is the enforceability. Yeah,
0: I am so grateful to each of you Um, as your former staffer. I am so thankful to have learned from all of you and to have witnessed the way in which you respect and love Mr. Lewis. I will give you one dirty little secret from our staff team that was exposed because Jamila, his um, deputy chief of staff talked about it today. Their soul food lunches where they brought in um, food and desserts to their team. Um, Congressman Cleaver, I hate to tell you, but during your chairmanship, Mr. Lewis missed a lot of CBC meetings, but he came for the lunch at the end and ate with the staff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let me take, let me just say something about Jamila real quick. If yes. I can, very quick. Yes.
3: John poached Jamila for my staff. And Jamila worked for me for years and years and years. And I love Jamila. She was she came to my office as a volunteer after. After 9-11 when I was getting all these death threats she just said, I want to help you, Congresswoman and then I was able to hire her and she was phenomenal and years went by and John told me he wanted Jamila to come work for him and this was the only time that I was happy another colleague was poaching my staffer. Mm-hmm. I, I was so pleased. I said, John, I'm supposed to be upset but I'm so happy. I'm so happy for Jamila and Jamila has just risen to the occasion. She's phenomenal I'm so proud of her and Michael and the entire staff, but that's what we have to do. And when Jamila and John, well, when John told me that, I said, oh my goodness, you know, I can't say anything, but I hope I helped prepare her for you. Yes, she represented um, him
15: very
16: well today. She really
15: did. Wasn't she
3: great? I was so proud of Jamila. At
16: at, At some point, I think we really, need to recognize John Staff and Michael Collins in particular, I think all of them are great. Uh, Michael, I've watched him over the years, uh, take care of John Lewis. Um, And uh, the day that Michael pulled me aside, we were on the floor and came to talk to me as a pastor. Whenever somebody says, I need to talk to you as a pastor, I know um, that whatever it is is not good. And so he told me what was going on and I had to walk around for about almost nine days uh, with that heavy burden. Uh, I had begun to pray for John, uh, and then John decided uh, to, to uh, be become public. Actually, John didn't even want to take any any uh, uh, chemotherapy at first, and so thank God he he did uh, start at a later time. But all of that was due to the work of Michael Collins, who who, who put his who put his life. On hold, and mm-hmm. uh, and and just dedicated his life uh, to uh, to John Lewis, uh, and there was a guy named Bernard Lee, who was in the in Vietnam, came back from Vietnam, uh, came landed in San Diego, uh, got a bus ticket to Atlanta, went into Martin Luther King's office at three thirty-four Auburn Avenue Northeast, and said, "Dr. King, my name is Bernard Lee. Uh, I'm with you uh, until the end." Uh, dr Kings who, who are you what's going on here he said I, I, I you know I belong to you and Bernard Lee stuck to Martin Luther King I mean all the way through he uh, he wasn't in, in Memphis um but uh, you it, anytime you see photographs I have photographs uh with with Bernard Lee uh it's and and the staffs are are, um, are what makes us and uh, you know, Angela Rye and the staff we had was amazing. I think that Barbara Lee had a, 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 a great staff uh, uh, when she was chair. Uh, and Julie is still with her and who is amazing. Nice. So I, I think, I don't, you know, I don't, I, I don't hesitate to tell people that uh, whenever they see us doing things successfully, uh, that, that there are people who they don't see who are making it happen. Uh, and that's certainly uh, the case with with me, and, and it was the case when I was uh, SCL, uh, when I was uh, CBC chair.
15: Yeah, you can't you can't really discount the contribution that people who staff us make to making us who we are. Yeah. And so, in that regard, I want to thank Angela uh, for all of the work that she continues to do. Whenever I, I often tell her that, look. You know you're not a staffer anymore, huh? but she just persists <laughs> in taking care of all of us whenever we need something. And so I want to take the opportunity to thank you and let you know that I don't take that for granted. Well, I appreciate so it all that you. you do, and that's real right. proud of the real proud of how far you have gone since you left the CBC, even though you have not left the CBC. Yet. Yeah, yeah, Angela. Yeah, I,
3: like, I
9: just
3: want to say. Whenever if people find out I know you, they can't believe it. It's like, you know Angela <laughs> Rye.
0: <laughs> like I don't I know this is about Mr. Lewis and I'm saying this about him too. You all make us and it's Miss Sewell's fault that I'm crying because she's here. And I told you every single time she's here, I cry. But I want you all to know how much we deeply love you and admire you and want nothing more than to carry on your legacy. So I wanted to do this so that people could see the humanity of Mr. Lewis, but to also see how wonderful each of you are. And so I'm just so thankful. Um, Mr. J does say that, but I will always work for and with you. I will always have your backs, ride or die. Um, And I mean that. And so does the rest of the team. Um, I know all the the CBC alums and the current team, we're all close. It's a sorority, a fraternity and everything in between. And most of all, a family. Um, And so we thank you so much. We miss CBC lunches. (laughs) We might, (laughs) might crash one soon, but we love you so, so much. And I thank you all so much for doing this. I really do.
14: We all carry John in our hearts and our minds and we will always uh, be able to further his legacy Um, and we do it um, out of love Um, and he reminds us of that all the time because he just gave and gave and gave and was so willing to share the platform. I'll never forget the gold medal ceremony um, during the 50th anniversary when we gave a congressional gold medal to the foot soldiers. John obviously was the right person to be to accept it on behalf of everybody. But I went up to him and I said, but there's a Reverend F.D. Reese in Selma. He goes, yes, Reverend Reese invited us to come. Please let Reverend Reese. He shared that platform. Do you remember that? That's John. Yeah. And all of that pouring into others, willing to share the light. Um, that's why I know that his legacy will live on for future generations. And it's an up to yeah. to make sure that we live out uh, and 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 complete his march.
15: And, and one yeah. thing else I'll say about John is um, John know, John, John knew his place, and uh, when the women started talking, John John was quiet. And that's, I'm gonna leave it like that.
3: Yeah, I, and, I'm trying to learn from John myself. Yes, <laughs> that's true. He was very very. He was, very, cool. he was egalitarian. <laughs> Angel, so there's one thing. I'd I, do i have one minute to just tell you one little story about john uh and this has to do with the daughter of george wallace peggy wallace kennedy Uh, john introduced me he said bar i want this was on one of our pilgrimages i want you to meet george wallace's daughter i said oh no 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 thank you i know you're loving and kind but you know i know who this man was? She said, "No, Barbara. I want you to see uh, what repentance is ab- about, and I want you to see what love is about." So he introduced me to Peggy. During that period, she was beginning to work with President Obama. You know, she was a Democrat, and she acknowledged her father, her daddy, and and the terrible things he did, and said, "I've got my life to live, though, and I'm gonna." Do this on behalf of racial justice and equity. We became really close friends. Okay, and John, uh, year before last, Terry, were you there at Dexter Avenue <laughs> Baptist yeah. Church? Okay, now John, <laughs> Peggy gets up, and I, and I brought her to my district too, and we did a lecture series. Heard Lucy Baines Johnson, Donzaleigh Abernathy, and and uh, Carrie Kennedy, and Peggy was reluctant because I'm coming from the Black Panther Party, right? Wakanda. And so Peggy was reluctant. But John told Peggy, he encouraged her, he said, no, you go. Peggy came, there were a couple thousand people there. Peggy was the one that got the standing ovation. But anyway, back to uh, Dexter Avenue. So Peggy had told me a lot of stories about her father, which were terrible stories, you know, and but she really has been able to figure out her own path, and and she, again, she's a wonderful woman. She was there when Terry mentioned being at the state Capitol a couple of years yes, ago was. and spoke. Well, she was but actually She was there when we welcomed John. She was there just this past Saturday. Yeah. So so Peggy came to DC. We were talking about something and. Uh, I said, Peggy, you know, I hated your father. It's no secret. And I said, because I was working for Shirley Chisholm as a volunteer in 72. And I was about ready to leave the campaign because I was a young, very progressive uh, woman who had never registered to vote. But because of Shirley Chisholm, I got involved in her campaign. I said, and she, um, and I told John the story. I, and she suspended her campaign to go see your father who had been shot and to go go see him in jail. Shirley Chisholm going to see George Wallace. And I was going to, I was gonna quit the campaign. And so I told her, uh, I called Shirley and told her, I'm, I'm through, this is it. You you, you burned me once, that's it, I don't go two times. But she she told me, Barbara, there may be some redemption. And John repeated this, you know, there is a re- there's some redemption you can't, you can't hate. And John kept saying, Barbara, you can't, hate. I said, but I don't, okay. So Peggy told me about that. And so she says, Barbara, let me tell you this. She says, I was in that hospital room when Shirley Chisholm came to visit daddy. I was there when he broke down and when he told her how he had to do right and how he had to do better and wanted to work with her and wanted to apologize. And and so Peggy told me she was there during that whole discussion. And so I it was a private thing between me and Peggy, but John John knew about it in the discussion. and and so um, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, we were there during the pilgrimage. Peggy gets up, she speaks, right? And John looks at me and I'm with my grandson and all my kids and John winks and I'm saying, yeah, Peggy's got it going on. She really is wonderful, boom boom boom. At the end of her speech, and and I guess John knew this, that's why he turned and winked. She said, and you know, uh, and she told the story about her daddy and Shirley Chisholm, and she said, um, and that young woman who was working so hard for this black progressive woman for president is Congresswoman Barbara Lee. John stood up and he ran back and he hugged me and said, yeah, Barbara, see, you see what I'm talking about, how, how love trumps hate and how redemption works and you know so he gave me my lesson that day in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church and he was the one who introduced me to her and uh we stay in touch now she's such a wonderful woman my kids love her in the Bay Area she comes you know so I I had to share that story because you know John was really uh and some of us who ain't about that kind of love you know all all the way yet John was one who taught us look you gotta get to love. You gotta yeah. understand that's the
15: only way to justice and peace. <laughs> I
0: love that. Hey, uh, y'all.
15: My, my phone is getting ready to run out of juice.
0: We're 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 hanging up right now, Mr. J. Mr. Cleaver. It sounds like Congresswoman Lee is ready to write the next civility note. You should take a guest contributor. I love you all. I have already <laughs> cried. So I have nothing left to say to you all except for get some rest. I love you so much. Thank you. Thank I you, it. Angela. I love, it. You. love it. All right. I love
3: take you. care. Oh,
0: thank all God. right. Okay. Bye. See you,
8: Terry. Go to sleep. I ain't <laughs> home. <laughs> Do we have the courage? Do we have raw courage to make at least a down payment on ending gun violence in America? We can no longer wait, we can no longer be patient. So today we come to the well of the house to dramatize the need for action. Not next month, not next year, but now, today. Sometime you have to do something out of the ordinary. Sometime you have to make a way out of nowhere. We have been too quiet for too long. Thanks. There comes a time when you have to say something, when you have to make a little noise. Yes. That's right. When you have to move your feet. This is the time. Now is the time to get in the way. Yes. The time to act is now. We will be silent. No more. The time for silence is over. Some of you have heard me say that the right to vote is precious, almost sacred. In my hearts of hearts, I believe that we should make it simple and convenient for all of our citizens to be part of the democratic process. It should not matter whether you're black or white, Latino, Asian American or Native American. We should be able to participate in the democratic process. On March 7, 1965, I gave a little blood on the Edmund Pettus Bridge for the right to vote.
9: House Resolution 1054 resolved that the House has heard with profound sorrow of the death of the Honorable John Lewis, a representative from the state of Georgia resolved that a committee of such members of the house as the speaker may designate together with such members of the senate as may be joined
0: be appointed to attend the new york times op-ed he penned shortly before his death he left us with these words though i may not be here with you i urge you to answer the highest calling of your heart and stand up for what you truly believe in my life i have done all i can to demonstrate that the way of peace The way of love and nonviolence is the more excellent way. Now it is your turn to let freedom ring. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say that it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression and war. So I say to you, walk with the wind, brothers and sisters, and let the spirit of peace and the power of everlasting love be your guide. He was often called the conscience of the Congress, but the truth is Congressman John Robert Lewis was the conscience of the country.